Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always. You know, I was struck by a certain quote uh, from our next guest. It was it was simple yet profound. He said to me, anyone can shoot someone. It takes a special person to place others' lives above their own. Being a medic is the greatest gift the Army gave me. This particular podcast is a bit of a departure from our usual highlights of veterans in the civilian sphere who've moved past their time in service and are now serving as patriots on the home front. I first met Rob Odison at Sornex's Summer Strong, an event which I love uh, and was blessed enough to attend. Thankful for that. I was capturing the story of a former Marine Corps scout sniper named Brady Cervantes. Rob affectionately known by his friends as Robo, is the non-commissioned officer in charge of the Special Operations Combat Medical Skills Sustainment Course, which is a recertification course for Special Operations Medical Personnel. He is considered an expert, and believe me, he is, in the field of Special Operations Medicine with multiple deployments to some of the harshest combat environments around the world. Now, every podcast, as you know, is unique in that it's a learning experience, especially for me as the host. But with this podcast, you may want to bring out your notebook. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone as immersed in the field of special operations medicine as this guy. I just witnessed him in action at Sornex's Winter Strong, an event which I spoke a little bit about in our last conversation with Bert Soren. Audison was teaching a trauma class to attendees, and he absolutely brought the house down with his ability to field questions on the fly while teaching varying levels of trauma care. I know that, personally, my mind was indeed blown. And if you're there, you know what I'm talking about. My personal takeaways from this particular interview are twofold. This was Rob's first podcast ever. And wow, he absolutely crushed it. Rob, you crushed it. You'll understand here in a minute. And secondly... The man's field-tested knowledge base, coupled with a refreshing level of honesty, is truly special. Audison's forthrightness in navigating our conversation is really what makes this podcast an absolute thing of beauty. But as usual, I've already said enough. Here he is, the one and only, Rob Audison. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always. Here with me today is Rob Otteson. Thank you, Rob, for being with me. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thanks for coming. Uh, so we're in beautiful Southern Pines, in North Carolina. Rob, you've got quite the career that you've spent in special operations. And obviously you spent that first bit in the regular army, right? Yes, sir. Can you talk a little bit about early life and, and what that was like for you and what kind of led your path to the army? Yeah, sure. So I mean, like most people, I mean, I come from a long family of military history. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find an individual in the Army now that probably doesn't have some sort of direct family link to it. So my father was a World War II veteran. He served with the Marine Corps. Um, My mom was a nurse. Uh, We grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. So being a kid, um, 
I was always involved with my dad, like going to the VFW and doing stuff with like the uh, American Legion with the Marine Corps League. We would go and uh, you know, give out coffee on like Memorial Day weekend and stuff like that. And so at a young age, my dad kind of got me involved and, you know, taught me the, you know, the history of the Marine Corps and just to be proud of his military service. And I had a brother that was in Vietnam, uh, you know, uncles in Vietnam. Wow. Yeah. So, so brother was in Vietnam. Yeah, kind of a funny thing. My uh, older brother is actually older than my mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good icebreaker. Yeah, it's it's a half brother, but Uh, okay. So he was in in I think he got in in seventy four. So he never served in Vietnam, but was a Vietnam era. uh, I believe he did like something with air air frames. I know he was at Cherry Point, and uh, was also here in North Carolina, I believe. And so he did you know, three or to five years, whatever the, the, what guys did back then. I don't know what a typical tour of duty was, but mm-hmm. uh, there's a long history in the Marine Corps in my family. And, um, I, when my parents split, we, they, they got divorced at a young age and, um, me being like the precocious, like rambunctious kind of young kid, um, I was a bit too much for my mom to handle. And so, um, my mom and my dad always had a great relationship and we literally lived like maybe like three miles down the street from each other, but it was just kind of seemed that it was like, maybe better that I just go live with my dad. Um, and then, you know, it'd be like visiting my mom is, you know, besides the other way around where I'd be full time with my mom and live with my dad. And so, um, obviously being like, you know, a rambunctious kid, my dad was like, we got to find an outlet for this kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> and so they keep you from, uh, bombing a building or, <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean, nothing too egregious, but I'm just very high energy and I'm still very high energy. And so yeah. we needed to like channelize that for something. So, Uh, My dad with the Marine Corps League, they started a chapter of this organization called the Young Marines. Um, I've heard of it. Yeah, I don't know if it's still around, honestly. I haven't really checked in a while, but um, it's a lot like the Boy Scouts, but obviously geared towards military service. And so I believe I started doing that at like age eight, and I did that pretty much up through high school. I mean, I was like 16 the last thing that I did with them. And, I mean, you go through like a basic training, which is put on by – like reserve Marines. I think they guys that were already out Vietnam era guys. And then dudes that were like reserve Marines. So you go through like a boot camp, and, um, I forget how it was structured, but I think it was like every weekend for like eight or nine weeks. So it was like, you know, two days on the weekends, but you know, they put us like drove us in the dirt and stuff like that. And so being a little kid doing PT, uh, physical, like we had like PT tests we had to do. Uh, once I got more, a little long in the tooth in the organization, I, I went to leadership schools. I went to dive training. I went to this ludicrous, outdoor survival school in boulder utah which i'm like 14 years old and that this course they just like drop you off in the middle of the desert they teach you like some pretty basic survival skills and you're literally out in the middle of nowhere in places that there's a good chance that like human beings haven't like walked that's how remote this area is and they're like survive and so that's the kind of stuff i was doing as like a little kid um you know going to the ranges and shooting um I mean, I went to like, you know, like basic lifesaver courses and stuff like that. And so I kind of always knew that I was going to join the military, uh, which was a good and bad thing. Cause growing up through high school and stuff like that, I always played sports, but I never really applied myself with schooling because I was like, you know what, I'm just going to join the military. Like why spend all this time and energy trying to get straight A's when I'm just going to join the military. Um, and so I kind of had that mentality going through high school and a lot, like a lot of young kids, I kind of hit like a rough patch. I was doing some things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. Uh, I was grossly overweight and, and, you know, I kept making the excuse like, Oh, you know, I have time. I have time. Well, I get to my senior year of high school and I'm like 
310 pounds. Wow. Not in good shape. Like hadn't played. I didn't play football my senior year because of some poor decisions. Um, and kind of the turning point for me is I was, everybody actually told me I should tell this, uh, this lady, this, but there was a girl that I went to high school with who was like, Rob, you know, like you're such a smart guy. Like you just, you don't apply yourself. Like you're going to end up not like amounting to anything. And I was like, well, I'm going to join the service. And she's like, I don't think you're going to do that. And I was like, I was like, I have a plan. I want to be a green beret someday. And she's like, there's no way you're going to do that. And I just looked her dead in the eyes. and I was like, we'll see. Oh, wow. And so throughout the years, everybody was always like, oh, you should call her. You should call her and tell her. I was like, as significant as that was for me, she's probably not even going to remember that. You know what <laughs> I mean? That was just a, a blip in the radar in her life. Um, and it's, it's cool because that kind of probably gave you that edge that you needed, that, that chip on the shoulder, you know, going in. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so – I squared myself away. I was like, hey, Rob, you know, time, time's now. So um, over the summer, I lost like 65 pounds. Um, I worked at a moving company that was just really, really, really super hard work. I was working with the recruiters getting in fitness. Uh, as we talked about earlier, I wanted to join the Marine Corps. Okay. Um, wasn't even an option. I was like, I'm going to be a U.S. Marine. Like, grew up in the Marine Corps, the young Marines. I walked into the recruiter. The guy was kind of a not a real pleasant person took one look at me and was like, you're too fat. And so I was like, all right, I'll join the army. <laughs> Literally walked right next door and they were like, we'll take you. And so obviously the US army. <laughs> yeah. So obviously that shook out really well. And yeah. I mean, I, I told you, I still have a lot of love for the Marines. I mean, I'm the first one in my family to be in the army. I think there's a distant Odyssey that was um, some sort of legacy at West Point. So my dad's brother had a son, I believe he was a professor at West Point. So he, he, my dad tried to convince me to go to West Point. I'm like, dad, that's like the top, you know, 0.1% of the nation. I'm not that guy. You know what I mean? My, <laughs> and again, back to me, not applying myself, doing homework and stuff like that. Uh, that wasn't an option. So obviously, you know, the t I mean, typical story of the you know, global war on terrorism, uh, age of veterans is, you know, the towers came down, you know, I was a freshman when the towers came down and I was like, you know, if I could like World War II, I'd leave school right now, drop out, join the military and, you know, go with the boys overseas because everybody saw the writing on the wall. But you can't do that. It's, mm -hmm. you know, the 21st century. So yeah. uh, had to wait, graduated in 2005, um, joined the Army. I initially had uh, an airborne contract. Uh, I had a really, really, really high GT score. And so I was actually being approached by the Air Force, the Navy Nuclear Power Program. And everything was just bleeding. So I'm like, I'm a warrior, man. I'm like, I, I want to just be a grunt. And they're like, dude, you're wasting all this talent. I'm like, dude, that's all I want to do is be a grunt. I want to be airborne infantry. I want to jump out of planes and I want to go do the Lord's work overseas. <laughs> well, as fate would have it, so I got an airborne contract. But I, So you have to go to MEPS twice, uh, you know, kind of like an initial screening. And then when you go up there for the second time, that's when you're shipping off. Well, I guess they found a heart murmur and like literally I'm standing there getting ready to ship off and they're like denied, like you're not going airborne. I'm like, uh, okay, well what now? Mm. Um, and honestly that maybe worked out in my favor. So they're like, well, we have this option. The first infantry division is getting ready to go to Iraq. And I was like, well, that sounds great to me. <laughs> and not only were they getting ready to deploy, there was an incentive program because they were standing up the fourth brigade combat teams. And so there was an incentive program. I believe it was like a 400 or $500 extra a month just to sign up to go to that unit that's going directly overseas. So I was like, as a wow. private, 500 bucks is a ton of money. Yeah. And so I was like, sign me up, like send it. 
so obviously basic training and all that stuff was pretty uneventful. I, well, actually not super uneventful. My dad passed away when I was in basic training. Oh, so geez. it was expected. Um, yeah. I kind of had like said my goodbyes to him and stuff. So he had bone marrow cancer, but ultimately was going into kidney failure. And so I had, I said goodbye to him and he was like, Hey, like, you know, when you go off to basic training, like focus on that. I knew I wasn't going to ever see him again. And so I, you know, kissed him, told him I loved him. And I was like, Hey, like, you know, if you pass away, I'm going to stay with the boys. And he's like, yeah, just stay with the guys and train. Um, so kind of funny, not so funny story. So when you kind of in process into the army, you go to this like 30th AG, which is down at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, so going through that, I, they, I'm getting ready to what I forget what they call like ship down range. So you're going to your like infantry training meeting. So everyone's like, I'm going down range. <laughs> um, and so that night before we go down range, uh, one of the cadre members came up and was like, you know, private Audison, like you have a phone call. And my mom was like, Hey, your dad's kind of turning for the worse. I actually got to talk to him one last time. And the next day they kind of doing the shark attack, running around or whatever. And, um, just getting smoked. I'm having, like, having the best time of my life. Cause I've, I had already been to Paris Island. I'd already experienced like Marine, like a part, like a, like a soft Marine Corps boot camp. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, Marine Corps drill instructors are far scarier than army ones. I mean, half, <laughs> half my army drill sergeants were fat and like out of shape. So <laughs> to me, it was just kind of like a joke. Uh, and so we're going to make us look bad, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm running around living my best life. Roger son, Roger son. And so they're, they, they're like, private Austin, get over here. Um, and then I got the word that my father passed away. And so I'm in, I believe I'm in the first sergeant's office. And so I'm on the phone and I'm crying, of course. I mean, I'm sad. My dad just passed away. And one of the drill sergeants comes around the corner. He's like, oh, what's wrong, private? Mm-hmm. He's like, you said that you're here. Like, he had no idea what, I, what information I just received. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, no. No, 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 abort, they, abort, abort, abort. <laughs> and so they they waved him off, and you know it was all good. I mean, I didn't care. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not his fault. Yeah. Um, and then they kind of were like, "Hey, man, like you need to go home." And I, I kind of explained to him like the deal my dad and I worked out, and they're like, "It's not about you. It's about your family. Like you should go back mm. and see your family." So I did. I was home for a week. Uh, you know, did my my father's funeral, saw the family, stuff like that. And so when I get back to Fort Benning, they were like, well, obviously you're getting recycled, but, you know, just continue to train until told otherwise. And I'm like, well, Roger that. And, you know, day came, you know, day after day after day came and weeks came. And I'm like, hey, Drill Sergeant, am I like, am I good? Or are you guys recycling me? And after like week four or five, they're like, hey, we're just going to leave you in basic training. And so they're like, the only thing you missed coincidentally with what I do now for a job is uh, first aid. And yeah. so <laughs> I, I'm, I missed an entire week of basic training. It happened to be first aid, but I feel like I'm more than made up for that. I think uh, you did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so another incident happened in basic training where we were doing pugil stick fighting and I shattered my hand and like just a good ranger. I was like, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to, I don't want to be pulled out of training. And so I'm fighting on, I knew my hand was really jacked up. And down at Fort Benning, they had these monkey bars next to these tracks, whatever, and they all rotated when you when you grabbed a hold of them. And so when I went to grab onto the, one of the monkey bars, it rotated, and I felt these two outside fingers just splinter. Like, oh, I geez. saw it and felt it, and I, I was like, oh, man, I can't hide this anymore. It's not good. Not good. And so I f- went down to the hospital. They're debating on whether or not they were going to put pins in my hand, whether or not that was even they were going to kick me out of the military. What they settled on is essentially I had a oh, – sorry, it was this left hand. I had a cast. So these, my index finger and my middle finger were free, but the two other fingers were casted, and I was casted all the way up to my elbow. And they were like, you have a dead man's profile. Like, you're not going to be able to do anything in basic training. 
well, we kind of worked out a deal where, all right, I can't do physical training based off of, well, I, I ended up cutting my cast off after like two weeks. I was like, <laughs> I'm tired of having this. Well, they, they threatened to, you know, UCMJ me because I, I took my cast off. And so I was like, all right, I'll keep my cast on. Um, and so they, I couldn't do any physical training. So every morning while the guys were doing PT, I would just be watching the weapons and like the gear and stuff. And so I would just sit there and like do air squats or, you know, sit ups and try to do stuff the best that I could. Um, but I couldn't do any physical training. I was still able to shoot. I had to qualify that little crook that the cast made in my hand, like the M4, or I think the M16s were used would fit perfectly in that little crook. So I was actually still able to qualify, meet all the requirements until we got to the final PT test. And I was like, man, I haven't done any running, like nothing. Yeah. And I've told you I was a big kid coming in, not a runner. Um, Me and, neither. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. And I believe at the time, the 17 to 21 year old um, age standards, I think you had to get like a 1554 and I'm giving it everything. And I can't like 1552 just crossed the line and threw up all over the place. And I was like, yes, I just graduated basic training, you know, AIT and stuff. And so, you know, and you were on to much uh, more difficult things later on in your career. <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, I more than made up for the physical aspect of course later. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I got shipped out to Fort Riley. I was a part of fourth brigade combat team. Like I said, I was with uh, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 28th Infantry. And so this is 2006. Sorry, I probably should have told you when I joined the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of did our long train up. Um, and so going to Fort Riley, I was like, oh, I'm going to be mechanized. You know? Yeah, like yeah. mechanized. You know, we, you know, big, fat, ride around in tanks and, you know, bring your barbecue and stuff. Well, we were not. We were a light infantry uh, brigade. <laughs> and so, of course. Cardio came back into play. <laughs> yeah, cardio came back into play. And, of course, what do they do with the big guy? <laughs> make you walk the most machine gun machine gun <laughs> yeah. and so the whole time you know all of our they had you on the saw no the 240 242 yeah, yeah. so i will i was the cherry guy so i wasn't even the gunner the gunner was the glory position because all you had to carry was the gun and maybe 200 rounds mm-hmm. i was the ammo bearer so not only was i carrying my basic load i was carrying 800 rounds or excuse me a thousand rounds of linked 762 Fun. and every i think it's seven or eight pounds per 100 so not only was carrying my basic load but i'm carrying 80 pounds of machine gun ammo on my back Jeez. every mission we went on every patrol we went on and so by the time you know we deployed to iraq and stuff like that when i came back that put, was instrumental in my ability to pass selection yeah wow just i mean i was just so used to carrying a heavy load so we're, so when you headed to Iraq, what was the mission and what were you guys tasked out to do? So we were, it was part of like right in the beginning of General Petraeus's hearts and mind campaign, right. um, doing the sons of Iraq where we're basically doing like, we call it now village stability operations. So when our platoon, we were kind of broken down in the subsection. So our platoon went into Western Sheed district, just South of Baghdad. So we had like Camp Slayer, Camp Striker. We were kind of... I can't remember the life of me what the name of the roads were, but there was this air, um, it was Wester Seed. Man, I can't remember the heck of the name of the village. Anyway, we, we basically picked a compound out in this open area desert. So it was like right on the cusp where it was on a fault line between like a Sunni and Shia neighborhood that were constantly fighting each other. Like they would both fight us sometimes, but most of the time they were just interested in fighting with each other. Mm-hmm. And so we basically planted our flag created a combat outpost out of scratch like we were literally sleeping on our trucks for a couple of weeks we went i mean i think the i went 
35 days without showering as we were standing up our security, our guard post. And over time, it became almost like a little mini base. But it started out as just some dilapidated house that we chose to pick with concertina wire. Um, and so we stood up that combat outpost and then did recruiting drives for these like local police and, you know, did clearance operations to clear out any caches or any like, you know, major cells. And we did that for probably the first seven or eight months of our trip. Um, couple engagements, the small arms engagements were pretty much like quick hit, like ambushes and stuff, but a ton of IEDs. Mm. Like, I mean, it to the point where, I mean, every day you were just like, we're going to get hit. Like it was just that common. Wow. And then that was right around the time when they started bringing in those EFPs. Mm-hmm. And I believe at the time they were averaging like three kills per truck hit by an EFP during that time. I, I was in Iraq the three of the worst months. And I think we averaged, I could be wrong with the statistic. I believe they were having like 120, 130 guys killed a month um, during that time frame, And a lot of that was in the Baghdad area. Cause it was during the surge when they flooded like 150,000 right. troops there. And so we basically just drove down. I mean, the first time we took a casualty, um, my buddy specialist, David Wilkie, we were out on a foot patrol and this was pretty early on in the trip. And it was kind of like our baptism, like, Oh man, we're really in it now. And so we were coming back from meeting this, uh, I don't know, not a G chief. That's what we would call it in soft, but you know, this local guy that was supposed to be the dude that was going to handle the recruitment. And, uh, you know, we were going to pay this guy to like, you know, provide stability in the region. And we were walking back to our base over an area we'd walked through dozens of times. So I don't know when somebody found time to put in an IED. And so me and two other guys were kind of part of the point element. And we kind of crossed over this area and then David, right behind me stepped on a freaking IED and got blown into a canal. Wow. And you know, that was like the first casualty that we freaking took. Jeez. What was the, what was the shock of that? Like when you just realized, that? I mean, it, cause obviously going to combat, you expect a certain level of kinetic, you know, activity, but you can't really prepare yourself for something like that. What was that like? Do you remember? Um, I mean, you, you, it was very anxious. I mean, I, I mean, the best is you can be prepared for that because I grew up so much around the military. I knew what I was getting into. So I knew that, I mean, nobody wants to see anybody get hurt or their buddies get uh, jacked up. But I think I was probably more emotionally prepared to handle that because of, you know, hearing my dad's stories and my uncle's stories. Uh, but it still doesn't make it really any easier. And so it's kind of just like, holy smokes, like that really just happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go through all those stages of grief, like, you know, he's no, he's good. Like he's, you know, he got blown into a canal and you're like, no, like he's good. Like, and, but you know, inside, like he's not hundred percent not good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that was pretty tough. Luckily our platoon that he was our only casual that we took, like our already KIA, uh, we took, three others in the the company uh, throughout the deployment. It was a 15-month deployment, uh, but we did have a couple guys banged up. I was the next one, actually. So two weeks after that, um, again, with how rapidly we were kind of like evolving to the IED threats, uh, they were coming out with some like Wazoo equipment to the point where they had like this like I don't know, rhino. They they called a rhino, uh, like a big rhino horn sticking out the front of your truck. And that was supposed to combat the EFPs that were like angled a certain way that were going to trigger on the truck. And then they created like these big mine rollers. So at this point, we're still using Humvees. Um, And this is so summer of 07. And we finally get these mine rollers. And our lieutenant was like, hey, 
you know, Rob and, you know, Sergeant Ben Epps, like you guys are going to be point vehicle. And we were like, what? Like we were never point. We were always like the third one. We we're like, we're, great. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> sweet. I forget what happened. The normal crew that was normally the point. I don't, I can't remember why they were out of commission that day, but we were like, Oh man, like, are you come on, bro? Yeah, come on. <laughs> because that's how seriously the IED threat, it was a constant, constant thing. Yeah. But he was like, you're good. You're going to have this mind roller thing. And we looked at that and we're like, all right, we'll do the job. We're not driving with that thing on there because we're out in the middle of the country. And so navigating with this giant, like, 10-foot, I don't know how big this thing is, on the front of your Humvee. We're like, we're never going to get anywhere with this thing on. And he was like, I'm the officer. You're going to do it. Put it on the truck. So we're like, fine. Um, and so we're going back to Fob Falcon to do kind of like a refit. So that's, this is back where we would, like, take our showers and stuff like that. And at this point, I think we were only out, like averaging like a week maybe without shower. And like you had your water bottles and your little like hula wipes and stuff like that. Uh, we were still pooping in, you know, 50 gallon drums and burning them with diesel fuel, which I. Our smells s- great. Yeah. smells. <laughs> our squad leaders were like, you guys are going to be doing that. I'm like, e- dude, this isn't Vietnam. Nobody's doing that anymore. He's like, you just wait and see. And honestly, it's not as bad as you really think it would be. I mean, I don't know. You kind of turn into an animal as soon as you go overseas. So maybe that's just us being, you know, feral animals. Uh, But it's just, you know, becomes just like an additional duty you have to do. So anyway, we were heading back to go get, you know, hot chow and, you know, showers and stuff like that. And so we had this thing on us. And so by having this thing on our truck, we were very channelized in the way that we could drive back to the fob so we had to take routes that we normally wouldn't take um and we got through what we thought was the most dangerous area and we were actually out in an open field and we were driving and our truck smokes an ied or gets smoked by an ied i get knocked completely unconscious i'm up in the gun turret and so our captain or our lieutenant behind us this is two weeks post wilkie getting killed and all he sees is my machine gun and my helmet come flying out the back of the truck and he's like Audison's head is in that helmet and he told me this like years later he's like I thought that that your head got blown off and so he like everybody in the whole convoy is like oh my god like our truck got they say got lifted up you know 10 feet in the air the entire front end was just like a butter knife somebody cut the engine off Mm. and so had we not had that thing on our truck we it would have gone off underneath the troop compartment and it would it would have obliterated us you wouldn't even I mean there would have been nothing to send home to our family. That's how big this IED was. So luckily, so the we, lieutenant actually gave a good order. That's amazing. So yeah, we we give we don't we don't give them any credit. So we tell them that if we didn't have that on there, we wouldn't have gone the way that we did. Yeah. So uh, because it was on there, he got us blown up. Yeah. And so I like that turnaround. You know, I got blown up. I remember kind of like waking up, and I'm and I'm like. I, I knew immediately we hit an IED. Like, it was like I was really, really out of it, but it was abundantly clear that we just got hit an IED. And I thought the vehicle was on fire, and I tried to get up, and I passed back out. And then I wake up, and I look, and I'm the only one still in the truck. So when I had come down, we had these, like, gunner seats. The seat had broken, and my right leg had folded up underneath me, and my knee jammed into the the radio mount and my whole, my knee was ripped open and like down to soren X, we have those pants that are all bloody. Yeah, so yeah. that was what that was all from when my knee got slammed in that the gun hit me in the face and fractured my eye socket. And then I took some shrapnel, not metal shrapnel, but like the fiberglass I'm guessing it is. So I had like these burn marks slash cuts in my head. Jeez. And then my nose was kind of all bloody. I, something, I mean, maybe the gun, when it hit my face, it hit part of my, in my nose. So that was all banged up. And so I wake back up and I'm like, did these dudes just leave me in the truck? (laughs) And so I, for whatever reason, like kind of like I 
dove headfirst out towards the driver's seat. And I land on the ground and I start screaming like, medic, doc, like everybody left me. You got to come get me. And then so doc comes up and drags me away. And I think, not that the adrenaline was wearing off, but I felt more with it in that first like 15 seconds after waking up. But once he drug me back, I started kind of really panicking. Like, where's my rifle? Like, I need my gun. Like, I thought we were in the shit. And I'm screaming and yelling. And they're like, dude, your gun is, you're holding your gun. Like, (laughs) your gun's in your hand. And so this is like really pre, like when everyone started like figuring out about like TBIs and stuff like that. And so when we went back, they did like some abbreviated MACE exam on me, which is uh, what they would do to kind of rule out like a head injury. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, I just recently went back and looked at my document. They were like, yeah, no TBI. But then on the same document, there said a period of like three minutes of unconsciousness. It's like, well, that's 100% a TBI. <laughs> um, so now not approved by the medics. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, they didn't air. They just pre like how often we use like air medevac or whatever. And I'm just like, everything's wearing off. I'm in pain. I'm like, doc, you got to give me pain. You got to give me pain. And he's just a regular 68 whiskey. And I think he was kind of afraid to give me morphine or drugs. He was like, you're not a candidate. I'm like, well, if I'm not a candidate, then who is? I mean, like, <laughs> just give me, I think they had like, the, oh, they had the auto injectors back then. Okay. And so I didn't get any pain medicine and they didn't air medevac me. So they're kind of interrogating the whole scene. So I'm like, there's a picture of me sitting in the back of a Humvee and I'm blood coming down my face and I'm just sitting in the Humvee like, dude, get me back to base. So it was like another four or five hours before I got to go back to oh, see wow. a, to see a doc. Um, luckily, nothing structurally like major. Um, I was actually able to stay in country. I had like light duty for like a month or whatever, but it was July 4th, 2007. So we had fireworks that day. So, <laughs> so every year, even to this day, I still keep in contact. There was me uh cardoza van apps and a guy named keeling all in the truck together and we all every year on the anniversary we say like hey man like glad you're here with us you know we're proud to be alive and stuff yeah. like that and so because it could have gotten i mean it could have gotten a lot worse wow that's wild so and how long was the tour how, how much longer did you have after that oh dude i was just getting into it so we got there in february of seven and we were there until april of 2008 so wow um Coming off that light duty, and I mean, even to this day, I get I'm super. So part, I mean, I PTSD, yada yada yada. The big thing of noises, even to this day. I mean, no matter like how many times I've been back to combat, like I get super jumpy, and I and I equate it to completely to that, you know, getting yeah. blown up that one time because getting back up in the saddle uh, and going back out on operations, man, it was really 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 challenging to kind of shove that fear back down because i mean the id threat was so bad that like every piece of trash every bump you know every dead dog i mean they were stuffing stuff with dead dogs and stuff like that uh you just thought it was going to blow up and that that threat kind of stayed and you know here there guys would get hit and so that stress weighed on me more of that constant fear of death after that deployment than than i would say any of the other deployments I mean, I was certainly scared in other ones, but that one, it was like a constant thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like you just assumed you weren't going to come home because of how bad the IEDs were. Jeez, and yeah. so it, it, when I got back from that one, it, it, it was pretty rough transition coming back and stuff like that. And so, yeah, uh, talk, talk a little bit about that, uh, coming back and, you know, kind of mentally settling in. I mean, obviously not easy <clears throat> to do. And you think, well, I've got a whole career left ahead of me, however long you plan on staying in. So, you know, you're going to go back, you know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so back it up a little bit. So I had gotten a random email. It was like, hey, you meet the qualifications for special forces. And I was like, yes, reply. <laughs> and I was like, what do I need to do? And they were like, hey, when you're on your when you're leaving Iraq, 
come to like when you pass through Kuwait, give us a holler. They had like an SF recruiting station there or whatever. And so uh, I'm like mid tour at this point. I'm still smoking cigarettes. I'm still like overweight. Like there's a picture of me stirring poop and I just look like 10 pounds of shit shoved in a five pound bag. Like, and everyone in my platoon is like, there's no way you're going to be a green beret. And again, I'm like, we'll see. And so I always had that grit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, my grit has made up for a lot of, you know, athletic deficiencies (laughs) um i'm just stubborn and i just you know i'll just go 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 like the little engine that could so i started really 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 training hard and by the time i left iraq i was 200 pounds get ready for selection um and so i had that to focus on when i came home but you know i was fortunate that i you know a lot of guys that have a hard time transitioning when they get home is that like they go from this super kinetic environment um, and then it's like, you know, you want a decompression period, but the, they get home and it's like, well, you know, honey, here's your kids. Like you're back to being dad. And it's like, Whoa, why are you? And you know, some guys feel like, why are you like attacking me? Like, yeah. you know, I just need a moment to like, you know, a moment being maybe like a month or two to like, just chill out, ease back into being a dad, reestablishing my priorities and what my role in the household is. Like, you can't just come at me like overnight and, and, you know, throw back all these responsibilities of dad when I've been away for 15 and a half months. Right. Um, my, I was married to my ex-wife Kelly at the time. And obviously, you know, we didn't have any kids or whatever. So she was pretty chill, like a great army wife to, you know, help, you know, transition uh, back into that. Um, dealt with a little bit of like anger stuff. Um, certainly dealt with, like there was a time when her and I were leaving uh, a Cincinnati Reds game and we had, we, the writing was on the wall. The Reds were going to win. And we were walking back to the car, and when the Reds win, they shoot off fireworks, and it blew up, and I was, like, on the ground, and Kelly was like, whoa, like, are you good? And I was like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I kind of had, like, a blackout moment. And that was, like, one of the really the only moments that I've ever had, kind of like a – I wouldn't quite say a flashback, but something right. that kind of, like – Triggered that. Tr- like, overtook me, and I, I acted, like, reactionary as opposed to, like, consciously, like, what I was doing. Right. Um, but I think training for Special Forces really kind of helped – me focus my energy towards the next mission. So, um, a lot of that stuff started coming up like after multiple Mm. deployments. Um, and so we'll get to that later, but there was a period about like two and a half years ago where I really felt like I was like at coming close to rock bottom. Like, uh, some, I need a major change in my life because like things are not going as well as I, I hope that they are. Yeah. Um, so I got back in April of 2008 and by August of 2008, I attended special forces assessment and selection. And as fate would have it, I was selected and <laughs> determined worthy enough to try out for the coveted green beret, which I was super honored about, especially in that particular selection class. Um, I don't know what, was that a tough class? More tough because there was some bad poop put out that essentially you could kind of just, so in June, I think it was June of 2008, there was a kid that died. Um, I think he got bit by a snake or I don't know. There was something weird about how a kid died. And then there was like kind of like a gift class. I don't know if that was really what happened, but there was a lot of dudes that went to like that follow on class that got selected. And so a lot of these dudes were coming back and basically telling guys back at their SF recruiting station. So the, the particular SF recruiting station I was at was at Fort Riley. They ran like a, 
train up. And so my unit was like super supportive. There's a lot of guys that come from different units where like, as soon as I said, I want to go to selection, people were like, F you, like you're a traitor. Like mm. we want nothing to do with you. And they don't give them the time to go train. Well, my unit pretty much was like, Hey, if that's what you want to do, man, like that's your place of duty. And so for like four months, like I didn't even have to report to my unit. Yeah. I was just tr- every day, all day, just training to be a green beret. Yeah. And so, um, that, that's incredible to you to have that support. I mean, I think that's the way it should be. It's hard for a unit, obviously, because you're a number, you know, and they're trying to keep you there in that position. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like, you know, you've you've got to get ready for that. And that's hard to do if you've got a unit with a mentality of we don't want you there. Mm-hmm. So that's tough. I think it was a perfect time to do it because, you you, you know, kind of had those training cycles. Well, they knew that they were going to be because they built this unit completely from scratch. They knew that there was going to be an extremely high rate of turnover. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a good time. Like me being gone didn't affect anything because there was Mm -hmm. no training. They were trying to figure out, you know, the Sergeant Major's doing their Manning issue, you know, Manning uh, stuff, bringing new guys in, new or old guys leaving. And so it was kind of like that perfect window to be like, Hey, I'm going to go try this. And yeah, I can't thank, you know, first Sergeant Wilson. Actually, he's like, uh, super duper command sergeant. I mean, I think he's beyond the division level now. I still keep in touch with him. He was super supportive of me. That's um, awesome. Going to do that, and to this day, I still keep in touch with him. He likes to check in on me and stuff like that. I mean, he's doing well in his career, and he, he's always super stoked to see that there's still some black lions out there uh, <laughs> crushing. I don't think there's too many of us, but uh, there's quite a there's still a few that are floating around that we check up in on each other and stuff. That's so. cool. Did, so, you know, what was instrumental about your leadership when you were over there and seeing leadership? But were, were there guys that you remember? that really had an impact oh, on yeah. your career going on later? Yeah, my weapons squad leader, Joseph Shu, he's a staff sergeant. So he was an 82nd guy. So they staffed a lot of our dudes with 82nd guys. So these guys were like fresh off the invasion. Some of them had been like in the beginning part of the Iraq war. Because like I said, they were standing the unit up from nothing. Right. And so they needed external, you know, like le- leadership to come from like outside of the organization because uh, it wasn't an organization. Right. And so he, this dude this day taught me everything I know about machine guns. And it's my claim to fame. I claim to be the mo- one of the most surgical machine gunners on the face <laughs> of the planet solely due to this guy. Every day we were doing crew drill competitions, like setting up the tripod, T&E, you know, drawing our range cards, you know, just breaking down, you know, reassembling. Like, I mean, I can break them like a 240 Bravo down to like, taking out the little springs and stuff. And I still remember that stuff to this day, yeah. uh, all because of that guy. And, and he was a phenomenal NCO. Um, I actually got very, he got decorated. He had a silver star in, in Iraq for, you know, basically choosing to hug a suicide bomber. Cause they, this guy like came up on our command element and he saw that this dude had a vest on and like grabbed him and hugged him and took him to the ground. And they, and he prevented the guy from being able to trigger a suicide vest wow. and I ended up getting a silver star for it. Wow. And so this dude was just cut from different stuff and he was a little quirky. You know, some of the other NCOs didn't like him, but I mean, I still to this day think he was one of the best NCOs that I ever had. And mm. being a young and impressionable guy, I mean, he was a paratrooper and you know, he was what I wanted to be, you know, I at least wanted to be airborne and just, you know, taught us some hard lessons. He was like, you know, no no, no fleece jackets. Like, if we're going to go run in Fort Riley and it's five degrees outside, it's shorts and a T-shirt. <laughs> you know, just no creature comforts whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of training events where he was like, empty your rucksack. You're going to carry, you know, the squad equipment or whatever. And one particular night, we were doing like a battalion, like Colex, and we got to our patrol base, and it's Fort Riley. It's like 
And what is a colex? Uh, culmination exercise. So we okay. did like just for the civilians. That yeah. Might hear, yeah. So we did a build up. It's like you had your platoon exercises, and that build up to company exercises, and then that build up to the battalion exercises, and eventually, I believe we did an entire brigade ex- exercise where we're going to hit this objective. I mean, it's totally like World War II style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, tactics like artillery shooting overhead, and it's like, yeah, well, you know, we're not doing that. <laughs> In Iraq, but it was still actually pretty cool training. I mean, these dudes are shooting one five fives and mortars. I mean, it's all live fire. We're going to hit this village. You know, we're we're up on a hillside with the machine guns. We're shifting fire like dudes are maneuvering past our freaking tracer round. So it was like pretty legit training as an infantry dude. And so this one particular night, he's like, "You're gonna get your stuff. It'll be at the patrol base." I get the patrol base. None of my stuff's there, and it starts raining, and it's like. 28 degrees outside it was just just you know in the mix between raining and snowing Mm -hmm. and they were like uh yeah we don't really know what to do so you're just gonna have to suck it up and i'm like what do you mean suck it up like i could die out here (laughs) and so what he did is he gave me a poncho liner or you know a whoopee Mm -hmm. and then a poncho and it's like just snap that together and roll up inside it and so i just rolled it on the ground and rolled up in a little infantry burrito and that's what i had to i didn't sleep a wink that night but (laughs) there was a couple of things like that 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 dude just you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally, just increased my level of willingness to endure like crappiness. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so, and I've just taken that with me even to this day. Like, you know, just I, th- nobody enjoys being miserable, but there is something to be said about the character building that being miserable does for right. you. Because when you do need to be miserable, you know, you, you can, you can push through it. And, and throughout the, the special forces course and stuff like that, there was many a times when I'm like, I really hope that they're not like, they know we could die. Right. Like, and then they're like, they're going to save us if it gets bad because there was a couple of nights when I, you, you're laying on the ambush line and you're like, there's no way that that we can stay out here all night. Yeah. But you, you know, you, the sun comes up the next day and you're like, ah, you recharge. You know, I always say I'm a solar powered Ranger. So as soon as the sun comes (laughs) up, I'm like good to go. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you remember about SFAS and, you know, kind of the whole selection phase What of your career? I mean, that's, that's difficult and it's hard to explain the difficulty of that, but what was that like for you personally? Um, if I said it was a breeze, I, that, that would be a complete lie. Yeah. So when I went, it was 14 days of selection. Okay. And so, um, some people are like, Oh, 14 days, you know, mine's, I forget what it is now, like 24, 25. I'm like, trust me, dude. <laughs> it, it was 24 days of selection condensed into 14 days. Yeah. So we met all the training events that you did. We just did it in a shorter period of time. And so because of that, you were extremely sleep deprived. There was no recovery. And so the thing that I remember the most, I need no matter we got so little time in between events that I decided to not shower the whole time I was at selection because that was an extra 30 minutes I could sit on my cot and like shut my eyes. Yeah. Uh, there was twice that it downpoured when we were back at, they call it Tent City at Camp McCall. And I would run outside with like a bar of soap. So I did take two showers like in the rain. Um, but like literally that, I forget, it was maybe a 10 minute walk, you know, you know, shower for five to seven minutes, 10 minute walk. But that I was unwilling to sacrifice that time because I'd rather have rest. And because of that short and condensed time, there was a lot of guys that um, had, you know, soft tissue injuries and, you know, ankle and knee injuries just from overuse and not having, being able to rest. Um, and then I got like these, so we were still using the old Molly gear, like Alice packs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So you had the gator clips and stuff. And I had used that stuff through the infantry, but the, um, 
you constantly had your rucksack on. And so the two, the one thing I remember the most is I had these like sores on my back and they were, they went well beyond being blisters to the point where they were like craters. Like they just dug out of my back and I ended up having to walk the, the final trek with my hands basically shoved up behind my rucksack to try to, you know, create some sort of barrier because you're not allowed to like modify your rucks or anything. Right. You can, you can cut up one of your little, uh, we call them puss pads or whatever, your little yeah. sleeping mats and kind of put that back there. But other than that, like you get no way to mitigate that kind of uncomfortableness. And that's a part of the selection. Right. And so some guy had new skin and I was like, well, maybe I could just throw some new skin on that. And that was quite arguably one of the worst pains I've ever felt. It was, that felt worse than having my knee hurt. Like really? put, put a new skin on that open sore on my oh. back. And so I remember that. And then I actually quit. And, and selection and mm. I don't know who my hero was and I wish I could find him to this day so on the trek I was just I was at it you know I, mean, I was my knee was pretty jacked up my hip was pretty jacked up and at Camp McCall for everybody that's ever been there everybody I mean I remember this thing maybe everybody else had an emotional response but you could always see this light it was like a like a floodlight on the Camp McCall airfield and that was kind of like a reference point and so the whole time during the trek, like, or not the whole time, but towards like a part of it, you could see that. And I was like, well, if I could see that, that means we're almost back. Well, I saw that thing spinning for like six and a half hours. <laughs> and so at one point I was like, I just can't do it. And so I sat down and I pulled out some, you know, lickies and chewies in my pocket. I'm like, I'm done. I'm over yeah. it. I'm over it. I'm so done. And I hear this voice like, you know, walking up. He's like, Hey, Rob, is that you? And I was like, yeah. And I, he was like some hillbilly from like Tennessee or something. He's like, what the hell are you doing down there? And I was like, I'm done, man. He's like, man, get your ass up. <laughs> and I was just like, roger that, dude. And it was just that him just recalibrating me. Yeah. It was like, get your ass up. And him and I walked and finished. And I think there was only like 30 of us that actually finished the track. Wow. And so I remember I could totally see that it was the end. And I had no idea what the end of selection was going to be. Like, I thought we were going to cross the line. It was going to be like, yeah, you did it. Mm-hmm. And they were like, take your instruction from the whiteboard. And so you actually didn't find out whether or not you passed until like another day or two. Um, and they kind of put you in a room and they're calling off roster numbers. And like, uh, they called my name and I went outside and I'm like, Hmm, like there's not as much of us out here as there is in there, but there's also like a lot of good dudes still that are inside, or at least what I perceived as good dudes well, his favorite habit, I think 140 of us finished and only like 34 of us were selected mm. or something. That, it was pretty, pretty small. I think it was like a 17% pass rate. Wow. Um, and so we were the lucky ones standing outside. So wow. we pretty stoked. So, so what, for people that don't understand the process after that, what goes on after so, SFAS? Well, at MSU, they tell you you get selected and then you kind of do like some exit interviews. Uh, they don't really quite tell you how you do. I remember them sitting down with somebody and they kind of gave you an overview of like what to expect or like they kind of show you like these training metrics and I'm just like, whatever, man, like I just want to get out of here. I'm tired as heck. <laughs> and they're like, what do you want to do? And so I wrote down my preferences. So I originally wrote down 18 Delta and then I was like, mm, I don't know if I want to be in training for like a, you know, a year just for MOS phase. So I scratched that out, put it at the bottom, put Charlie Bravo echo and Delta. And when the guy was interviewing me, he's like, Hey, you know, you scored pretty high on your, so you take like intelligence tests and stuff like an IQ test. Right. And then obviously you take like your, your ASVAB and they have your, like your GT scores and stuff like that. And then throughout the course, I, there's some other aptitude stuff that they, I think it's like the Wonderlick or some other things that they have some like metrics on you. Okay. And so like combine style stuff almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was like, why did you scratch out Delta? And I kind of told him that reason. 
He's like, I think you should be a Delta. And I was like, I think you should be a Delta. Like, <laughs> I think I think I just want to be a, like a Bravo or something and just kind of like I just want to go back down range and stuff. So this uh, you know, it was August of 2008. So I was, you know, you know, four or five months off of deployment. And I was like, man, I just want to get back into the fight. And so he was like, ah, you're going to be a Delta. I'm like, sweet. And then so and to me, I'm like, I felt like I'm just a specialist. I was like, I don't feel like I have any place to like argue that. And so I was like, Roger that, Sergeant. I think he was actually a civilian. I was like, yeah, Roger that. I'll take 18 Delta. Yeah. And so I actually had quite a while before I got orders. So I actually didn't get orders to go to um, airborne school until February of 2009. So I out-processed Fort Riley like February or uh, January. And then I did airborne school and route. So Kelly had went ahead and got established at Fort Bragg while I went to airborne school. Uh, coincidentally on the way to airborne school, I actually broke my foot in Nashville. Um, we, me and an, another guy that was from my company that get, we got selected, we went out in the town of Nashville and I don't know. That's always, that can always be a dangerous occurrence. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what, what these guys, what malfunction they had. And I, first, I guess they just pegged us as military. So there is Fort Campbell. That's pretty close to Nashville. Right. Um, and I guess maybe just the tattoos. I didn't nearly have as many as I have now, but the ones that you could see were obviously like military ones. Um, and I was coming out of the bathroom and these dudes just wanted to pick a fight with a soldier. And so I kind of got ganged up on by like three or four dudes. So I had to kind of like hockey style, like fight my way out of, they had pinned me out by the, by the bathrooms. And I went to go like kick one of this, these dudes in the leg. And when I kicked him, like he moved and I hit like this little aperture on the ground. That was like a concrete thing. And I broke my foot. And so we were able to get away. Like the bartenders had our back and like the bouncers, they saw that these dudes tried to gang up on me or whatever. And so I went back to the hotel and I was like, I'm not really hurt. Like I'm, I'm fine or whatever. And I woke up the next morning and I was like, yeah, for sure. My foot's broken. And so I would get down to Fort, uh, Fort Benning and reporting to airborne school. And I didn't really know what to do. And I looked, there was like some lady in process. Like, uh, I'm here for airborne, but I can't do training. Like I just broke my foot. I don't know what to do. Like, like I don't, I don't have a home. Mm -hmm. I don't have anywhere to go back to. Like I'm already, you know, out processing from Fort Riley and I'm supposed to go to the Q course and I can't show up to the Q course without being airborne qualified. And so as fate would have it, like I was able to secure, like, a, like a, I could hang out at um, the Fort Benning SF recruiting office for like two weeks, but that's all they would gave me. So I ended up having to do airborne school, the broken foot, which was, ended up being a pretty excruciating experience because you kind of have to hut, 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 airborne, you know, shuffle around everywhere. Airborne school is a good experience, but it was definitely that uncomfortableness in my foot. I actually still have a lot of uncomfortableness to this day in that foot because of that. Um, but it was able to make it through that. And when I finally got orders, the lady, I think, I think her name was Miss Alvarez and she might even still work at SWIC. She was like, you have no idea how close you came to being needs of the army because by me not going to airborne school, it kind of like messed up my whole orders process. Mm. And so she had to, out of the kindness of her heart, had to like redo all my orders and get that all kind of like back on the path of me showing up the Q course. Wow. Um, and thankfully that happened. And so, you know, I reported the Q course. I think I ended up getting there in either late February or early March of 2009. Mm. So reported in. So how was that whole process? And, and obviously going into, I've heard from 18 deltas that the medical training part is, you know, pretty extensive and pretty tough. Yeah, so uh, when I first got there, MOS phase was still at the end of the course. Um, and so, well, the Q course has changed so much over the years. So when I got there, the first thing you did was you had to do 
back then it was ANOC, BNOC and ANOC. So basic non-commissioned officer course, advanced non-commissioned officer course. And that was out of Camp McCall. And then you did this thing called CLT, which is like combat. I don't know. It was like Pathfinder stuff, like setting up a DZ and like general, like airborne tactic stuff. I can't remember honestly what it was all about, but basically the BLC or the, the ANOC and BNOC was more like physical fitness. Like the guy that was running it was actually a legendary Green Beret named Dan Brokos. I think he just used us as for his own entertainment because we would basically have like blood sport fights in the back woods of Camp McCall where he would have us just like beat the crap out of each other and like do fist fights and do a bunch of physical events. But it was all good fun. It was really – he was – he's I ended up – he ended up being a company sergeant major when I got to 110 in Germany. And I mean, he's very well established in like the CRIF world and stuff like that. And so I never directly got to serve with him, but I've definitely felt at least a little bit of his influence. And so he was the good one running that training. And so that was pretty fun. I mean, didn't really get any like NCO professional development out of it, but we definitely got some more like PT and stuff like that. Yeah. It's fair to say a lot of your development probably happened earlier in your time in Iraq, right? And seeing the leadership that you saw there. Yeah. I mean, you can extrapolate some leadership qualities from folks you see in the Q course, but you're a student and that's really not. There are guys that mentored you, but unfortunately when I went through the Q course, it was kind of a, you know, a haze fest and stuff like that. And so there were guys that were good, but there was also a guy like guys that were like tab protectors and stuff. And so nobody was like overly dramatic with me, but there were definitely, I mean, it was obvious that they were like out to try to get dudes to quit or they were trying to like screw dudes over and stuff like that. And they're trying to change that culture. Uh, the problem now is kind of finding the balance of like keeping a standard, but also like not, going out of your way to like screw a dude over and stuff like that. And so um, a lot of guys are a bit grumpy about that because you're kind of trying to find that balance. You know, the kind of thought process now is like, Hey, selection is their litmus test. Now you need to train them to be green berets. Right. Right. Um, And so after I did that, then we went right into language school. And Mm -hmm. so you did language school for four months. I think it was, I got French and then after, oh boy, the, yeah, <laughs> I would hardly say that I speak French anymore. <laughs> That's not an easy language to get, though. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not bad. Yeah. But the problem when I lived in Europe, everyone's like, "You lived in Europe? Why didn't you speak French?" The French are very pretentious, protective of their and protective language, of their yeah, language. Yeah. and so if you butcher it at all. That you you can talk to somebody in France in in French and they will answer you in English because they're just like Mm-mm. we're not going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and I don't blame them. You know, you yeah. have every American that comes over who's like, you know, "Je m'appelle Robert, enchanté." You know, you know, trying to do like broken French, uh, and it's like, all right, like, what do you need? Like, do you want your loaf of bread or like or your wine? Like, just you know, go on about your day. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't blame him in that aspect. But then again, like when you truly want to try, like you have to find someone special to work with you because yeah, um, it is when 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 they're rapid firing at you, you're like. Uh, Parlez plus lentement, s'il vous plaît. Like, please, please speak more slowly. <laughs> uh, you know a little. <laughs> yeah, I still can do all right, but I would say it's I can get my point across, but it's not the way they teach you is not really like a super good way to teach you. So they're like, we're in a room. This room is white. In this room, there's two men sitting on a chair. You know, it's it's, it's a very not a normal way to talk. Like you can you can describe things that are around you, but it's not a natural flow. You know, yeah. you don't have the colloquialisms. You don't have the things that only like really immersing yourself in that culture would get you. And so 
when I have spoke French to people, they're like, you speak funny. Like it's like almost like matter of factly. And yeah. I was like, well, that's all I know how to speak. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so when you go from there, you, you go into the medical training, how much right after language training? Is that how right after language? Then you got transitioned over to the, at the time it was like, I think it was Delta company, fourth battalion. Now it's its own group. So you're over at the, the joint special operations medical training center. Um, and again, the entire med course is different than I did, but when you first get there, you kind of go into your clinical fundamentals, like your anatomy and physiology. Um, you, you have to take a pins test, which is, that was like the hardest phase in that. So basically they have like these cadavers and then they'll have like a pin and it's like the pin is in a particular nerve and you're like, well, what is this nerve? What does this nerve innervate? And and there's all that kind of sort of thing throughout the body. I believe there was either a hundred pins inside the body. And so you had to just describe what that was or what, you know, what muscle group that was, does it flex? Does it extend? Mm -hmm. You know, what nerve innervates that muscle, yada, yada, yada. And so that was like one of the first biggest hurdles in the Delta course. I mean, then after that, you kind of went into like doing IVs, like that you haven't started doing like patient assessments or like trauma stuff that come that came in a later time, but you're doing like IVs, you're learning how to do like BLS, ACLS, there's like American Heart Association stuff. Um, you're going through like disease processes, um, so more of like the like aid station type medicine stuff. Um, and then you go out and do the TPA or you do trauma surgical skills. Again, these are all different now. They call them like trauma one, trauma two, trauma three. I, even me working there, I don't really know how it's all broken down because we're kind of a little isolated, like a little sub, uh, you know, committee there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you went out back, you did like surgical skills and then you did trauma patient assessments. And then you would follow that on with like your graded like trauma runs, mm. um, that had a ridiculous time standard. And it's, it's, you know, less about medicine, more about being able to like digest an algorithm, um, and being able to like do everything appropriately. So that's, that's how they introduce stress is that you, every procedure that you do has an exact way it needs to be done and it needs to be done in a certain order and under a certain time constraint. And you, you have like milestones you have to meet. And so that, that's like uh, the stressor for that. And so, uh, this, they called it CTM back then. I believe they still call it CTM now. And that was like one of the biggest litmus tests, at least for the SOCOM portion. So the, the 18 Delta course is broken into two separate courses. You have SOCOM and then you have SFMS, which is the special forces medical sergeant course. Uh, when I went SOCOM was only six months. So after that CTM stuff, um, you, there was something else you did after that. I honestly can't remember. But then you would go on your first hospital rotation. And so I went up to Richmond, Virginia and you're riding on local EMS um, you're working in a hospital and you kind of like rotate that shift, like day and night, you're going through procedures, you're going through like point of injury care, which you don't see a lot of trauma. Like most EMS, you're, you know, as an old lady fell at a nursing home or, yeah, yeah. you know, someone had their diet, didn't take their diabetes medicine. So, I mean, that stuff's all fine and it's good to kind of, you know, get any medicine at that point because you're just trying to be a sponge. But I mean, that's not the patient population we're dealing with where, you know, our guys, when you need to come to the rescue or dudes that are in a world of, you know, shit. Yeah. Um, you do see some disease processes, but at least in my career, nothing was like super extraordinary. Um, it was just, you know, Hey man, my tummy hurts. Like, give me something for that. Yada, yada, yada. Like the Afghans always had issues. It's like, 
you guys all have issues and yeah. it's always like kidney stones or, you know, urinary problems or STDs. Like God, I mean, being a medic, the frontal male nudity you experience in your, <laughs> in your career. And it's like, dude, like stop whatever you're putting it in. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Like the first, that's the first line treatment is stop doing whatever you're doing. Yeah. Um, and so the, surprisingly you have to deal with that a lot with your like Afghans and stuff, but then mm. you get back off your trauma rotations and then, you graduate Sockham and then you go into the SFMS portion, which is like a re the first part of that was like a kind of a more in depth analysis and breakdown of like clinical disease processes. Um, you do laboratory work where you're doing like blood stains, like gram staining, uh, you know, like counting RBCs and white blood cells and all this stuff that you really could just take a prick on your finger and put it in a machine. Like they yeah. taught you like the, you know, the brass tacks, like how to do that in an austere environment. Um, and so, um, you know, looking through microscopes and all that. And there was, I mean, it was a pretty, nobody failed that. I mean, I, at least I, I don't think anybody failed it at the time. It was a pretty easy block to pass. And then after that, uh, you kind of went into your like surgery and anesthesia stuff. And the surgery and anesthesia test was by far my hardest test because, um, you had to know like indications, contraindications, like reactions and interactions with other drugs, like synergistic drugs. And so, um, you had to digest a lot of information on that test. So that I barely, all the other ones I was fine. I barely squeaked by that test. And then, um, then we have another test called the ATP test, which um, that ends up at being at the end of Sockham. So the ATP is what is the credential that makes a soft medic a soft medic. So when you have, a, when you, when they do like a con op for an operation, when they have medic on the board and the medic's name is in blue writing, that means that guy is a special operations, advanced tactical, practitioner paramedic i don't know what the nomenclature they use now it's, it's funny that they actually there was a weird argument about using paramedic because national registry felt like they owned the rights to that term paramedic and so there was literally a discussion panel on whether or not we were going to use the word paramedic or like practitioner i think it's back to being tactical paramedics so okay. i think we're good to go on that now. <laughs> uh, oh that's funny and Go ahead. No, so, and, and what was the process after that? So you take that last test, pretty difficult, I gather. Extremely difficult, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they bell-curved ours. I mean, my, I wasn't like su I wasn't like super-duper, like the first people to take the ATP, but it hadn't been around much more than a couple of years at that point, I believe. And so um, I believe they had a bell curve. And I think because the bell curve, I was able to actually pass that test because <laughs> it was pretty tough. I mean, you, they said it was like open book and I'm like, okay, great. It's open book. But like, I didn't find a lot of answers in this book. I mean, and it was, and you're, it's a basically all the stuff that you, so basically when I went to the Delta course, all the other medics were like, go to the block, learn it, take the test, brain dump, rinse and repeat. And so everybody failed to tell me that there's a culminating test that covers all that sh stuff you just learned over the last six months. Yeah. And so it was just like, Oh man, it was pretty <laughs> brutal, but Hey, once you pass it, you pass it and you have it for life. So, yeah. uh, or until you have to come back to see me, which I, I, I do the recredentialing, all that stuff. So oh, I, wow. I run that committee. So every two years, soft medics, if they want to maintain their credentials as soft medics need to recertify that. And so, um, it's really, really good. We're the only MOS in the entire military or only like, you know, group of individuals that have to recertify ourselves, which is, I don't think, I mean, we kind of bitch about it, but it's like, yeah, everybody agrees that like, if, if there's any MOS that should, you know, prove their competency, um, improve their proficiency, you know, get the latest updates, it's certainly medicine because medicine is a, a revolving door of information and things change, you know, all the time. Yeah. And especially in that wartime environment, right? In combat environment, 
you're always seeing new injuries. And uh, oh, I think, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of the new medicine that came from over there and overseas has made its way into civilian hospitals. Yeah, tourniquets. I yeah. mean, the, 20 years ago when we invaded Iraq and invaded Afghanistan, nobody used tourniquets. And, um, you know, there was a particular medic that was at one of the national, or, you know, the national mission uh, units that developed the cat tourniquet. And that now that's one of the most widely used tourniquets in the world. And I mean, even law enforcement, local EMS and everybody's using that. And so uh, there's been, unfortunately, it's taken a war to kind of advance all this stuff and, you know, process of, you know, figuring things out with guys getting hurt and uh, figuring out new ways to deal with these things. But the, the advancement in military medicine over the last couple of years, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years is absolutely incredible. I mean, we're using whole blood on the battlefield. We have the ability to, you know, identify team members that have o, o low tighter blood and, and, and I get in a pinch, I can take that person's blood and give it to his buddy wow. um, right there on the battlefield. And so all this stuff has kind of come around the last like six or seven years. And, um, there's a, uh, a doctor named Colonel Stacy Shackelford who basically we've always operated on this thing called like a golden hour. And in the beginning we thought that it was like an arbitrary number, but she took all this data. She runs the joint trauma systems, which is they handle all the statistics for all DOD wide, like casualties for the last forever. And she had really grinded down in her studies and determined that if someone's going to die, it is 100% within the first hour. So she basically certified that the golden hour is a legit thing. Mm. And not only that, that the predictor for 24 hour and 30 day um, decrease in mortality, the only thing that we're doing on the battlefield that's improving that is giving blood Mm. within the first 30 minutes of uh, casualty taking an injury. And so um, we're doing big things and, um, you know, we're doing really great stuff to improve uh, mortality on the battlefield. And so it's been a pleasure working at the committee. And like I told you before we started that it's, it's been an honor. I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I think to me, this is a gift that the army provided me an opportunity to, to, to train and retrain soft medics, um, you know, redo their credentialing. Um, it's been the most rewarding job in my entire life. That's awesome. Yeah. And that says a lot. Um, you know, having gone through your first tour in Iraq and obviously seeing kinetic side of that and then getting to operate on the other end of that, right. And be on the other end of that in medicine, which is pretty incredible. So when you got to your unit, were you immediately brought into 10th group? Yeah. So I went to 110 in Germany. So I went to Germany right after the Q course. So I got there and I mean, was that, that's gotta be a pretty proud moment when you make it through that course and. Oh yeah. I mean, especially for me. So I did have a hiccup. I had to redo SUT, which SUT is like our kind of our version of Ranger school. Um, I honestly, it was less, performance based and more because i got arrested during the q okay. course <laughs> i got arrested for fighting um and i had no to, way uh, nobody <laughs> ever gets arrested for fighting in the military <laughs> and i had to call my cadre uh and be like hey sorry you know, i'm in jail it all got shaken out and i didn't get in trouble for it but i still called him and um at the end of sut and Sears school a matter of fact i'm still friends with him to this day you know he's sergeant major uh, George, I won't say his last name. I, I, he was the ultimate cadre that decided to give me a recycle. And at the time I hated his guts. And as a matter of fact, he was one of the first people I ran into when I got the 110. And I as soon as I saw him, I like turned around. I mean, I went back into student mode. I turned around and I was like, I'm getting out of here. And he was like, bro, Addison, get your ass over here. 
And, he, and I was like, Roger Sarden, like, stand up, pray, rest. He's like, hey, man, you're at group now. Call me, you know, call me George or whatever. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I was like, Roger that, George, you know, you, Sergeant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we've kind of, we've kind of, our careers have kind of like passed each other over the years and he's off doing great things. He's, you know, a Sergeant major and stuff now. And, um, we actually, we deployed, uh, the last time I deployed, he was a company Sergeant major and, uh, he's a really great dude, but, um, I was mad at him and then I found out, you know, he could have kicked me out, you know what yeah. I mean? And so, you know, it wasn't so bad, you know, yeah. looking back on it, you know, still getting the opportunity to be a green beret and, you know, not just getting sent to the 82nd to go be an infantry dude. So, yeah, my time in the Q course was long. I, I, I was there for two years and nine months. There were some hiccups just because the way they restructured the course. Um, and so there was kind of a lot, a lot of time in between events. I did recycle that event, which I can't remember how many weeks. So I think it was an additional 10 weeks. Jeez. And then obviously the Delta course and stuff like that. So I had a long time at Fort Bragg. Going. <laughs> so by the time I did don the Green Beret, I mean, I, I'll be the first a minute. I cried my eyes off. You know, <laughs> they do this ceremony, you know, like, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And they stand everybody up. It's the regimental first formation. And they freaking tell everybody to stand up. And they're like, Don. The green beret. Uh-huh. Freaking stand up and all your buddies put on your green berets. Because you're wearing the tab. You, you spend like a week wearing the tab before you don the green beret. So you're still walking around with your PC on. Yeah. So even though you have the tab on, like you're still looked at like a student. You know what I mean? Right. And so you're still walking on eggshells like, oh, like I'm scared. Like are you running can away? happen. Yeah, running away from cadre and stuff like that. <laughs> and then when you don the green beret, like it was almost like a, like a switch. Like all the cadre were like, welcome to the brotherhood. And, you know. You know, and you're just welcoming into the family and stuff that's like cool. that. And so, that's cool. I mean, I, I mean, my whole, like all that emotion of like people tell me I'm not going to be able to do it. Like you're too fat, like you're too lazy. And you know, you know, I was like, you know, F you like, look at, <laughs> look at me now, motherfucker. Like, you know? <laughs> so it was a very proud moment for me. I, I wish my dad could have been there to see it, but you know, if you believe in a higher power, you know, he, yeah. uh, I believe he was looking over me and some of the shittier training uh, back to going to selection when like right before I was wanting to quit, uh, this actually during land nav when another time when I thought I was going to quit, I was like, you know, show me a sign, dad. Like, you know, I'm not religious. I don't you know, say God, like show me a sign. So I'm like, dad, what's up, man? Like you watching over me. And I like look up and I saw a shooting star and I was like, check, you know, like I was like that, that, I mean, whether wow. that was a sign or not, I was, it happened right when I asked my dad to show me a sign and a shooting star came across. And so at that particular moment that gave me the boost to get me through that event. And then, uh, you know, my wayward stranger coming by and telling me to get off my ass was my second angel that came and mm-hmm. saved me that day. So might've been your dad's spirit too. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like your dad might've been. Sure. <laughs> what do you, so what do you remember when you got to 110? Uh, you know, what was the, what was the culture like in, in that unit? And what did you most enjoy about time, your time at 110? Uh, a lot. So when I first got there, unfortunately, I got sent. I was originally an Alpha Company, um, Alpha Company First Battalion, and I went to zero one one five. Did not have a great welcome to group experience. Um, again, I'll, I won't say his name, but the team sergeant was not a great team sergeant. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy was well past his prime. Really, I don't know how he got back to the position to be a team sergeant. This dude had spent like eight years off in ODA. He was like well into his late forties, physically couldn't keep up, didn't really know how to handle, you know, the younger guys. 
all around just not a good dude. So I was like, yo, I'm about to quit this ODA. And like, as a new guy coming to a, a, a battalion, like you should just be grateful for whatever the hell you have. Right. But it was so bad that the captain was a really good dude, but I was like, I don't really want to be here. And so I ended up being a driver for the ball. So I'm not really into military ball. So I volunteered to be a drive the DD or whatever. And, um, prior to that, I had gone, they needed a medic to go back to come back to the States to help one of the uh, Bravo company teams the MFF team 0124. They needed a medic to help run um, some training back here at Bragg. And so they're like, you want to come? I'm like, yeah, heck yeah, I'll come. And so I got to know those guys like, you should come to, to two, four. And I was like, should I ask? Like, I'm like nervous. Cause I don't, you know, I want to, I want to be grateful for just being on an ODA and I don't want to be this, you know, pipsqueak that's like, uh, I want to go to another team. Yeah. And so they're like, you should do it. You should do it. Um, the guy that was kind of running that team at the time, I was like, yo, this dude's just as bad as the other dude. <laughs> and I, and I just, I had to find that out through the week and I'm like, I'm not coming to this team. Yeah, yeah. Like, no way. This guy was such a chode. Uh, and so we get back and then, so now it's, uh, you know, I'm being the DD for the, the, the ball and these guys are like, hey, man, that guy's gone. Like, the new guy we have, you know, Matt, he's freaking awesome. He came from the CRIF or whatever. And so they're like, you should come over. And so I went and talked to the company sergeant major, a guy named uh, Norge. Um, he was our sergeant major of uh, Bravo Company. And I was like, hey, sergeant major, I was like, can would you take me uh, in the company or whatever? I, I, I really don't want to be on that ODA um, anymore. And he made it happen. And so the deal was, I was going to be the B team medic, but for the deployment, I was going to be attached to zero one, two, four, cause we were doing, um, split team operations, half of our team, uh, with the team. So matter of fact, I was on the team for like seven months and hadn't even met the team sergeant yet because wow. he was on in another province running operations. And I was with the captain and the 18 Fox and we were in uh Wardak province running split team operations. So they needed a medic to cover down. And so, we were in, um, like I said, Warwick province. Um, and then halfway through that trip, my son Riker was born. So I got to go home for that. Um, and then when I came back, they needed me to come back to do B team duties. And so for the last two and a half months or three months ish, I had to go back to Jalalabad and kind of pull B team duties, which worked out pretty good. Um, we got a new SAR major that came in, SAR major Rolf Jensen, who to this day is still, you know, one of my really good friends. And this guy was probably the big, most influential person in my entire military career. So I got to meet him in 2012 and we've been, you know, he's mentored me ever since. And, wow. you know, uh, I actually got to see him back in December and he just recently retired and again, not afraid to admit it, but I just got in tears and I just want to be like, dude, I just want you to know that like, he told me this story where you meet leaders in your entire life. And it's like, you ever taken a bunch of Play-Doh when you were a kid and like you mashed a bunch of colors together where, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't change the colors, but like you could still see like there was little yellow streaks or blue streaks or green streaks. Well, he's like, you're going to take what you learn from the, the goods, the bads and everything from all these people you interact with in your military service. And you're going to jam them into this ball and you're going to mash them together. And that's how you're going to develop your leadership style. And I told him, I was like, dude, I was like, you're the red in my friggin' Play-Doh ball. And that's pretty much like all you see. Like, I, <laughs> I mean, I, there's certainly things that I take from other individuals but like yeah. this dude was the last of a dying breed went to ranger school in like 86 grew up in ranger regiment you know was in the sf through the 90s you know won the bet you know used to sock best soldier of the year you know was a ranger a dive guy just i mean this guy was just cut from different stuff i mean this dude awesome. was in you know in his 50s and we'd be drinking down at fest he 
fell asleep one time in the train where in Germany, the train will go and it just parks itself at the end of the line. And like, they're not, nobody's coming around to wake you up if you sleep in the train. Yeah. So he's in his leader hose and he's like, going to, he's like, Oh, I got to get back to base. So he just, you know, hammered from gum the fest just runs the 10 miles back to base and makes it back. He's like, Oh, I made it back. And I'm like, dude, how are you doing that when you're like 47, you know, 50 years old or whatever. And so he was just, you know, I'm, I'm a legend among men. And, um, so I got to meet him, um, and then continued. We got back from that trip. Um, then I became a full fledged member of zero one, two, four, uh, still to this day, the best ODI I've ever been on. I mean, these dudes are like, they're, they're more than just brothers. Like these dudes are my family, Yeah. you know, Nelson, Chi, you know, Abby, Justin, like these dudes are dudes that I will know for the rest of my life. Like right. that's, that's how true. freaking solid these dudes are. And so, uh, very short amount of rest time, uh, rinse and repeat, uh, headed back to Afghanistan in 2014. Um, I had gotten divorced from my wife or we were separated. Um, and so went on that deployment kind of with a little bit of baggage. Yeah. Uh, but you know, as at most SF guys, it's kind of like when you go and deploy, and I think a lot of guys in the military do this is that the deployment life is simple. Like you kind of know your role, you know, you, you know, when chow is, you, you have to just do your job. And it's kind of, it's honestly easier than dealing with like life stressors. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's kind of weird to explain that to like civilians that don't understand that. And they're like, well, you could die. I'm like, yeah, you could, but like, life is still simple. Like you, yeah. you know, your status in life, you know, your role and it's easy. You know, yeah. somebody's cooking your food for you if you're lucky. <laughs> um, and so to me that was like, I just, I was dealing with a lot of stress and I was like, I just got to deploy. And that's not the right answer. And you only learn that from hindsight. Like you can't just stack on the emotional baggage that comes from being in combat to quell the emotional baggage that you bring to combat. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and that's kind of like a perpetual cycle that not, and I mean, that's not, um, intrinsic to just soft guys. I mean, a lot of military guys do that. And so it's kind of a repeated cycle throughout a career. Right. Um, and so I was very fortunate. My beautiful wife, Allison was a nurse <laughs> uh -huh. and as fate would have it, they, uh, had to move their compound directly across from our compound. And, um, they didn't have, they didn't plan very, uh, appropriately and so they didn't have shower facilities for the women and uh, you know being in 18 delta you know you always kind of go like to talk to the nurses and yeah. stuff like that you have access and placement and all the bravos and everyone's like yo take me with you like we're, tell me like you're, like you're my junior delta i'm like as soon as you open your mouth they're gonna like we're, we're, 18 delta's are sophisticated like yeah. you know we're we're in a higher echelon than everybody else <laughs> just kidding all my friends, but i was like the moment you open your mouth they're gonna be like you're not a medic and so i'd always be like no 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 so anyway, uh, their command team came over and was like, Hey, would you mind if the females would come, can come shower on the compound or whatever? And so we had two shower like trailers. And so I was like, yeah, you, they can use this one and we'll post a guard there or whatever. And so nobody accidentally walks in on the females right, shower right. or whatever. And so I would, you know, some, when some of the times I would stand outside on the steps and just kind of like guarded or whatever. And Allison just started coming and to talk to me and like hanging out. And, you know, obviously I would go in my off time would go work at the FST and do like medical stuff. And anytime they had casualties coming in, they were super willing to like, let us get our hands on the casualties. And when our casualties would come in, we would kind of follow them in there. So we just developed a great relationship. We met early on in the deployment and that kind of just developed into like, Hey, you know, let's look, we should see each other when you get out or when we get back home from this. And as fate would have it, like I was on post deployment leave and, you know, she came home and like where we lived, her family's lived like two hours apart. And so I was like, I told you I would come see you. I picked her up from the airport 
and she was coming home in her, you know, your uniform and stuff. And she totally, up until the moment she saw me standing in the airport, totally thought I was full of shit <laughs> and that I wasn't actually going to go uh, meet her there. And so, uh, <laughs> that's we, awesome. We've been together. We just hit our six year anniversary. Oh, that's cool. Congratulations, man. So what were those deployments like on, on a special operations team, you know, being over there? What was that? What was that like for you compared to your time in the regular army? Uh, I mean, obviously, far more decisive operations. So the first two trips... And you're in a different theater, too. Yeah, so in a different theater, yeah. I mean, there are some things that translate over. Like, I mean, bullets are bullets. People shooting at you are people shooting at you. And so um, having that that experience, you know, helped. But Afghanistan is not Iraq. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I mean, these guys will decisively engage you. Um, they will suck you into baited ambushes. Like you can really get jammed up in Afghanistan. And so you have to constantly be switched on. And in Wardak province where we were operating, uh, there was a high IED threat um, and a really, really high threat. Like the team starting to the team that we replaced had gotten killed that trip, like right before we got there. And so we were kind of taking over our kind of like an already damaged goods from that chip, that team. Like they were a really, really solid team, but that team starting that got killed uh, Dan Adams, Slim Adams, that dude was like one of the most well-respected, like best Green Berets, um, that 10th group had. And so the loss of him on that team, uh, was just unbelievable. Yeah. And so, um, hurt morale pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, pretty significant. And so we kind of had to come in and kind of like, I don't know, I wouldn't say rebuild relationships, but they just, they, it affected their performance yeah. losing him. Yeah. Naturally um, so. Yeah. And so we kind of had, I don't know. I didn't, honestly didn't really, those first two trips I didn't really enjoy. Mm. So we had a weird mission. So 10th group or 110 had a separate mission from what other Green Berets were doing in country. We were doing like a NATO ISAF thing. So we were training and advising like European counterparts to train and advise this like made up police SWAT unit. Uh, it was a completely flawed group, uh, you know, like organization, um, and essentially we were green berets now having to do like police style operations with evidence. Like basically we were doing like, like, like search warrants and stuff. I'm like, wow, we are not cops. Like, and, <laughs> and so it was very, very, very difficult to kind of navigate that. And not only that, we were working with like Romanians and Hungarians. So, you know, trying to get them to do like, you know, train the Afghans to get the Afghans ultimately to do what we wanted them to do. And it, there was just a lot of stuff that was like difficult about that. And, one of the biggest problems with that particular uh, unit is that all these members are from the towns and villages where we're going to operate. And so when we would want to do things that one, like, you know, speed, security, violence of action, like blowing doors and, you know, you know, causing a ruckus, a part mm-hmm. of that, yeah, it looks cool, but it's also to give us the leg up and advantage on the dudes that may be in these compounds or wherever the heck we're hitting. But because they live there, they were, less willing to like kind of ramp up that violence. And so it was a constant hassle to try to get them to do things because they didn't want their, you know, families or maybe people that are like, know their families to be like, why did your son come in and like knock my door in or whatever? And so they had just came with a lot of difficulties trying to push those guys. And that's kind of went both ways on the 2012 and the 2014 trip. Um, still got into it quite a bit, uh, st- you know, more so in 14 than in 2012, um, thankfully, knock on wood, I've never had to deal with treating an American casualty. Um, mm-hmm. lots and lots and lots of partner force casualties. Yeah. Um, 
not, I mean, they were kinetic, but nothing like super duper crazy. And then until the 17 and 18 deployment, that mm. was out of control. Wait, that, I, I thought we were, I thought we were done in Afghanistan around 2000. <laughs> you would, you would think, but I can promise you we're still dealing with 2004, yeah. you know, level bullshit, yeah. you know, in 2020. So, yeah. yeah. Um, what, what, so what was it about those 2017, 2018 deployments? So that, that was more of a traditional SF deployment where we're working with commandos and, um, working with uh we did a couple operations so there i didn't even know it until that 1718 trip that there was uh afghan sf that were like modeled after how we structure our odas mm. and so we got to do some missions with those and so it was very much more like direct action like uh, uh, kind of like doing a ranger mission so you'd have like you'd be going out we'd sometimes we do these like six team operations where you have you know five or 600 dudes like flooding an entire village on a phase line and causing, you know, mayhem mm. and, you know, doing clearance operations going after, you know, shitheads. So by the time we got there in 1718, most of uh, Americans uh, bases had been consolidated to like the major ones. So you had like Kandahar, Jalalabad, um, Bagram and some of the other ones. So all these little outstations. So in 12 and 14, that was the, um, Afghan surge. Right. And so when I was there that time, you had 150,000 Americans all over Afghanistan. So the footprint was out of control. Right. Uh, when we went back 17, 18, it was not like that. I mean, mm. SF was the only show in town weren't soft, I should say not SF. Um, and so you had a ton of assets. Those other trips we had no, like our men force was basically like our machine gunner. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we'd be lucky to get like some armed ISR, which is like birds overhead, like predators. Uh, but, um, you know, you, you had the ability to call in stuff if you got ticked up, like troops in contact. Uh, with the 1718 trip, you know, obviously under the Trump administration and not under the Biden or uh, Obama administration. I mean, it was I wouldn't quite say it was free fire, but it was guns hot. Like, go, go be Green Berets and, you know, do your job where mm. um, 12 and 14 strict ROE very strict um, left and right limit of what we could do on operations. Um, and almost to the point where we did have ISR overhead, it almost kind of seemed like it was less for our protection and more to make sure that we were like lockstep and like not doing anything we weren't supposed to be doing. Mm. So it was just a bad time to, to do an operation. I mean, I know guys that were doing the siege of Soto, like normal green brain mission. I think it was pretty on par during that time, but yeah. because we were doing that weird NATO thing, like we kind of just fell into a really weird niche mission set that frankly, I just, hey, it was kind of obnoxious. Yeah. I, I don't think that we, uh, maybe the commanders and stuff think that we achieved great effects. I, I can tell you from the ground level, I don't, I didn't see it to see it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, a lot of corruption, you know, the typical Afghan stuff, you know? Yeah. That you're dealing with, yeah. Yeah. Did you so? Do you that seventeen eighteen trip was that your favorite out of the trips that you took? I would say favorite, uh, in the fact that like we got our gun on the most, but that was when I really started kind of starting to really like the stress and my bottle of emotion. Like I was really starting to kind of lose it. So, mm. um, talk about that. What was that? What was that like? So you'd had a build up <clears throat> from that time early on in your military career. Yeah. So again, you kind of just move from, you know, operation to operation, and, you know, uh, obviously going through the divorce with Kelly, which, you know, she's a sweetheart. Like we have a great relationship now. We have a son Riker together and he's like the best little dude in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so we hit the more of the rough patch. So I was, instead of me, like, I kind of knew that I didn't want to be married to her, but instead of being a man and like addressing it, yeah. I kind of like, 
took the route of like, let's be the worst human being in the world and be like the most miserable person to be around to see if she'll leave. Yeah. Um, and so I was drinking a lot and, you know, kind of like having issues with command and stuff. They're like, yo, like my, my family life was kind of like, people were like, it was kind of getting noticed back at group and stuff like that. And kind of that kind of stress kind of built up and then, you know, meeting Allison and stuff like that, it kind of plateaued, but there was still some stuff lingering around from the mm. pre, you know, going through the divorce, like going through the stress of, you know, other trips. And so when I got to Germany or back to Colorado, the 10th Maine, I was like, Hey, like you have a lot of combat experience. Like, um, Alpha Company, uh, second battalion is getting ready to go. My buddy Justin, who was on two four with me in Germany, was on zero two one four in uh, Alpha Company tenth group, and he was like, "You should come to this team." And I was like, "Heck yeah!" Like, ask the team sergeant if I can come over, and we worked it out and ended up coming over there. Um, and we just had a lot of challenges. We had a really, really, really bad company sergeant major. Um, our team leadership wasn't the best. Um. I had the whole top three, the captain, the team sergeant, and the warrant. Uh, it was just a bad dynamic between the two. Hindsight, I love the captain. The captain yeah. ended up, you know, he's like he, I still talk to him. He's great. Like, he's mm. – we realized – like so we kind of treated each other like shit. I kind of, like, added a lot of more stress to his life because he was kind of filled like, – he was trying to play three roles at once, which – kind of came out of him being kind of an asshole but it was in response to weak leadership from the team sergeant and really poor leadership from the warrant officer and so he was being a brand new captain was trying to fill all three roles so it was a perfect storm of you know once we were in combat it was fine like guys were operating on all cylinders but it was like the knots in combat stuff the like the in-between missions like the you know the company sergeant major sucked like there was just a lot of drama that was self-induced from the unit uh, there was like, there was a very much an us and them on the team where mm -hmm. like we, to the point where we would like dudes on the team, like we would hide on our own compound. So like our team sergeant wouldn't find us and stuff like that, because oh, that's geez. how much we just didn't enjoy the company of like the whole team being together. Wow. Um, and then dealing with some frustrations back at home. Um, I would literally go back to my room in the day and like scream into my pillow and like cry. And like, just, we had some really, really bad like contacts and you know um some really close calls i was processing in, a, in, in an incident where i had made some decisions that i thought i i was gonna i got everybody killed like luckily nobody did but i basically had to like let our element into um, a ground where we could provide cover to these medevac birds coming in but it forced us to go to low ground because that's the only way we had a direct line of sight to where these medevac birds were coming in because the with the team on the other side of the valley had taken a couple of kias and we needed to provide security for them mm. but when we got sucked down to that low ground the taliban moved in almost 360 and had us pinned down in this building and so i'm up on the rooftop one of our guys gets shot in the head i had to i had to bring him down so i'm treating this dude um one of the other medics who was 300 meters away from me, kind of up uh, towards the higher ground where we're like part of the engagement was coming from. They started taking casualties up there. And I was like, felt hopeless because I couldn't really maneuver on the battle space. It was too great of a distance and the threat was too high. Um, so we were like, shit, we need to call in a medevac. And so our JTAC operated on a different fires freak. And so I'm moving back. I, I treated the guy with the head injury. I, I'm moving back up on the rooftop and I hear boom, boom. And I was like, fuck, are they dropping bombs? And so, you know, is uh, the JTAC dropping bombs like close to our combat? So I switch over to the fire free and I was like, yo, dude, was that you? And he's like, that was not me. And I like, uh, I like looked at everybody. I'm like, dude, that's incoming guys. Like we're getting bracketed by mortars and we're in a compound. Like 
basically the inside of the compound is like the size of this room. So maybe like 40 feet by 40 feet or something. And then you had like a terraced roof like with like a wall on the outside. Right. And we all jump off the roof and we basically like, I mean, this is by this time, four or five rounds are coming in. They're walking it towards the combo. The last one hit that wall of the compound. And so we all jump off the roof and we're literally trying to climb inside our assholes because wow. we think the next round's landing in the middle of the compound. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. And I remember laying on the ground, looking up and seeing my best friend, Justin. I'm like, how am I going to fucking explain to his wife that I just got everybody killed? You're yeah. you know him killed or whatever and so even though nothing happened like that weighed like super heavy on me that like dude did you make the right decisions like you you put dudes in danger but you know talking with my uncle who's done a lot of therapy for like veterans he's like dude you made the right choice mm-hmm. like you you nobody got hurt you got everybody out of there but i don't know i just had a hard time like really dealing with that and so yeah. um we had another that that was like a like a 14 15 hour firefight we had like one day off and then another back-to-back like really bad one where we took casualties and stuff um, I freaking, I'll tell you a story about a guy that lives down the street, uh, this EOD Mike, uh, almost had an incident where I triggered a houseborn IED. And so just, you know, I got pinned down by a sniper and so there was just a lot of close calls, a lot of stuff that was like building up. And then the external stress from the unit, just not really enjoying being a green beret, but still trying to be motivated enough to lead guys. Cause I, I was the most experienced guy for Afghanistan. So I was always the main effort cell leader. So guys really looked to me to make sure that, you know, everything was going smoothly in the operation. And so I just felt like the weight of the world was on me. I didn't have any way to like off gas, a lot of that stress. Mm-hmm. And so I just resorted to just like crying. Like I would just go back to my room and like cry and like scream into my pillow. And I just didn't really know like what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of just felt like trapped and had no outlet. And so it was, I don't know, it was really tough. Like when I was telling you about like how hard it was to be like, to keep driving in Iraq because you thought there might be an ID. Like that was like how I felt every day. Like, dude, like your men need you. Like the dudes need you. Like, you know, I established myself early on with the commandos doing some like gnarly stuff. These guys really looked at me. Like every time we would meet up with our partner force, they'd be like CQB one. They were, that's what they call me CQB one. Everybody wanted to be on CQB one because they knew that, you know, we were going to go get after it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I, I just felt like I had all this responsibility and all this stress and I was just letting it all build up and didn't really have an outlet. And so I, I truly felt like I was at my breaking point. And then, um, you know, after coming home from that, you know, you kind of are on that high from coming home. And then Allison and I ended up being separated for a year cause she was going to anesthesia school. So I was here by myself and just drinking and all sorts of stuff were kind of building up. I didn't have her here and was just making some poor decisions and stuff to the point where like, she said something to me, my family said something to me like, yo, it's like, you got to choose either drinking you know, what you're doing, like you're a green beret, like you need to man up, like you yeah. need to readjust what the hell you're doing. And dude, people at work were saying stuff and I'm like, dude, I, I got to fix this. And yeah. so, um, really just kind of just took it on myself. Like being like, just started talking to people, my uncle, like I went and saw behavioral health on, on Fort Bragg. That, that shit's garbage. That, the army needs to fix their behavioral health system. That, yeah. that helped nothing. As a matter of fact, I, I felt like that maybe would have added more stress in my life. So I immediately removed myself from that. And just really, I found a new mission. Um, I, tra- I, was, I decided that I was going to train for one of the national mission forces. And so I kind of just put my, my focus into that. And that mm-hmm. kind of, again, like coming back from Iraq, like I had a mission to focus on. And that kind of helped pull me out of the funk. Uh, I'm not free and clear. You know, it's ebbs and flows with that stuff. And I yeah. think every, every vet deals with that. You have, you know, good days and bad days. And um, as long as I feel like as long as you're aware of them and you know, you can keep yourself in check, your buddies in check, you know, you know, you have open dialogue with your spouse or your buddies. Like 
like we can check on each other and make sure that dudes aren't, you know, crescendoing over the deep end. So I have a pretty good support network and all of us, maybe because we're deltas, we're all like a bunch of women. We talk about our feelings and stuff all the time. So we, we really do. Have I like a, that. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, every day, like if I see someone with a bad attitude, I'm like, Hey man, what's up? You know, I always make sure to check on guys. Oh, and another thing I rag. So I had a lot of, a lot of junior guys that didn't have any combat experience. And so instead of, I was using all my energy that could have been used to like help myself. I was putting that towards like helping them. Mm. Like I would come and have like, you know, talking says like, Hey, like you just shot a dude. Like, how are you feeling? Tell me what you're feeling. Like, let's get it out. Like don't hide it. Yeah. You know? And so I was using a lot of energy, making sure being a good medic, taking care of all my guys and stuff like that. When I mean, like nobody was taking care of me, you know, no, I was the senior medic. And I think that was one of the bad things about medics is like, everybody thinks that we have it all figured out because we're medics when we're the ones that like, I mean, medics we're some of us are pretty jacked up, man. Like, I mean, we, we see everybody on the worst day of their lives. Like when we have to do our job, it's never good. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's never a good time to do it. I would always associate that with being one of the tougher jobs to do mentality wise. I mean, and I feel like you guys more than anyone need access to behavioral health because that is such a reliant position upon where you're at mentally. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, you've got to be able to respond to a situation in 0.5 seconds sometimes, you know, where guys are going over the edge real quick physically, you know, and, and so being able to respond to that, I mean, I feel like that should be one of the biggest access points for behavioral health done properly, of course, not not in the Army way that you know now, but, you yeah. know, having having somebody to outlet to, I think it's very important. Yeah, you know, for sure. For being in that position. So you you talked about the the stress of that and then coming back what was kind of your low point within all that? You know, did you have a pretty, did, was there a moment where you were like, man, I don't know if I can do this. You know, did you ever reach a point where you got real low? Uh, yeah, I did. I was, I never got suicidy, but I, I got to the point where I was like looking myself in the mirror, you know, I was drinking excess, started putting on some extra weight and I'm like, I tell myself like these voices in the back of your head, like, dude, you're like not worthy to wear the green beret. Like, look mm -hmm. at you. Like, like, you know, basically not like kill yourself, but like that you weren't even worthy to be like in the position you're at. Like mm -hmm. you're not living up to what it means to be like a special forces guy in a green beret. And so, uh, really just, to, just being really, really hard on myself. And I, I did, I came into work one day after like, I, you know, I made some poor decisions and drank on a Sunday. We had like an early morning on a Monday, didn't sleep at all that night. And so I'm like a brand new instructor and I'm like, Holy shit, man. Like I gotta, I gotta get this under control. And I went to my boss who the guy that I work for, a guy named Wynn, like this dude is the man. And he was just like, all right, let's do this. Like, let's, let's figure it out. Like what we're going to do. And, you know, and he's a civilian, but he's a former 18 Delta. Like, you know, they could have very easily just, uh, you know, go over here, you know, somewhere else and like figure out your stuff. But they kept me on the committee and, you know, they, we, 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 you know, I ended up going to this, this was years later. I ended up going to like this Boulder Crest Institute, uh, which is like phenomenal, like veterans program up in Boulder Crest, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And he lined that up. Oh, my friend, um, my friend, Brian, who, uh, owns flags of valor actually told me about Boulder Crest. Yeah. yeah I believe I was in, uh, um, it's in Winchester. I yeah. I think one of the guys that was in my class works for flags. Of honor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, he, he talked about how great Bouldercrest was. And yeah. How incredible that whole experience is. So that's that's awesome. Um what what do you what do you think 
within all that, obviously it was a mix of different things, but what do you think helped you the most through that time? Was it just having wind to be there for you in that moment and, you know, keeping you on or what do you think helped you most therapy wise? Um, the well, therapy wise was f- directing my energy away from things that were self-destructive mm-hmm. and putting them towards a goal um, to go be a medic at one of the national mission forces. That's cool. And so that to me was therapy. Like I went in a, I mean, I went from the lowest I've ever gotten to full on Shaolin monk. To the point <laughs> I was waking up at two in the morning and doing 20 mile, like rucks, like ruck runs. I mean, I was in full, I trained harder for this medical assessment than I trained for special forces assessment and selection. I mean, I went into full, I mean, I was doing trauma runs. I mean, I was just in it, you know, yeah. I was just in the zone, like, I don't know. I just, that was, I was probably in it more than I needed to be because I was kind of using it as treatment um, as well. But you know, the thing that always prevents me, and at least I I hope would prevent me from becoming another statistic or whatever is that um, every time I get low, I'm like, you know, you have a wife that loves you. Like you have a son that thinks you're a fucking superhero. Yeah. Um, Like your family, like everybody in your family thinks you're a hero. And it's like, how, what do you think? Like, what do you think that would do to them? Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And so I, I consciously think about that and, and it doesn't scare me to think that like the, you know, to think about like suicide and stuff like that. Um, Because I think that because of how much I value, what I've, you know, like how my family views me and like mm-hmm. being a father to my son. And, and like, I think that that like keeps me like a grip of, you know, the demons and stuff talking. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I just, I could, it's the same thing as like when I was in selection, like, could you look your father in the eye and tell him like, I quit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. it's kind of a lot like that. Um, and so, yeah. And it, it keeps me, you know, my head on straight. And, um, you, you, you talked about, uh, you know, one of those, decisions overseas where you felt like you didn't make the best choice um and in that moment when your friend got shot from your team what was the how much had medicine advanced by then where you were working on him you know and obviously throughout your whole career you've seen medicine advance continually but but what was the treatment protocol in that situation so I know it sounds crazy getting shot in the head, but he was very thankful that the helmet did its job. Yeah. And so it went into the helmet, uh, but it kind of deflected off his skull and kind of like rode, basically creased his head open. And so he had a pretty bad TBI, was kind of out of it. This was an Afghan. Okay. Um, um, and, but one of our close partner force guys. And so he was, I had to like take his gun away from him. And so I did very minimal treatment for that mm-hmm. guy, but he was somebody that now I had to pay attention to. So I, Excuse me. I basically just had to snow him out on ketamine because he was like really, really like combative, like right. waving his gun around and stuff. Um, and then bandaged his head. He did have a bit of a depressed skull, or not a depressed skull fracture, but I could feel a bit of a fracture. And so I just kind of did this. We do it like a little donut ring and kind of put that around uh, the wound on his head, the best like where it was bleeding the most, and kind of just wrapped it up. Um, and then basically kept him not uber sedated, but sedated enough that he was like chilled out. Yeah. Um, gave him some Brissette and ketamine and. Um, made him manageable and ended up getting him out of there. But um, had that been a full-on head injury, I mean, there's a lot that we do now for that, but, like, the the projected outcome from somebody with, like, brain matter showing is not, like, super good. Yeah, yeah, still and, still not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there are guys – I mean, there are guys – I mean, in the beginning of the war that are missing, like, half, like, not half their brain, but, like, large sections of their brain. I mean, they're not – they're functioning. They're not high-functioning. But, right, yeah. I mean, there are some incredible stories for some guys who survived that. But – uh, since being a, I mean, I, when I still came to medicine, we were doing, you know, 
national registry, like two large, large bore IVs in the arm. And we were flooding dudes with clear, basically pasta water, like salt water. Mm-hmm. And it, and back then the thought was that when a patient goes into shock, you need to replace the, it was a volume problem. It wasn't mm-hmm. about what that volume was. It was just, we need to get pulse pressures back up and, and, and get the volume back. But we didn't realize what we were doing is the, the stuff that we actually needed. We were now diluting to the point that it was ineffective. So we were actually killing people doing what we were doing. Wow. Uh, and, and that is like a fact. Like yeah. their statistics show that what are we were doing in the beginning of part of the war, there are people that have died because of that. Wow. I mean, so now with the use of blood and some other like blood component therapies, um, if you don't have blood, you're better off not doing anything than putting clear fluid into somebody. So wow. um, that's how powerful it is with, with the blood and what, what we intend to do with that. And That's incredible. What what do you think from all your deployments? What was probably one of the more uplifting moments? I'm sure you had some great moments where you felt like you affected a lot of change. But from your deployments overseas, what do you think was, can you pinpoint one moment where you just felt, you know, glad to be in that position that you were in? Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a few. I mean, one that instantly popped in my head is that we – we were working with this guy named Ozzy Zula Karwan, and it was down in Paktika province. He actually got assassinated, which is actually really, really bummed me out because, like, there are some really, really good dudes in that country, and this guy was one of them. Like, this dude was awesome. Very controversial, uh, but very, very, very solid dude. And we uh, we came down to his base and basically, like, we're like, hey, we full on, like, we're trusting you guys. Like, we're, we established ourselves at his base, so we're under his protection. <laughs> And so uh, there hadn't been any American activity down there for a couple of years. And so obviously with all the helicopters and all of our gear and stuff, we were, I mean, we had birds flying down, like fuel blivets. We basically like kind of built onto his compound. So I'm like, everybody in the neighborhood knew Americans were back in town. I mean, it was no brainer. And so there was a uh, market down the street that got hit by a, a vehicle born IED and a bunch of kids and stuff got hurt. And so I got the... Um, help a bunch of kids and so that was that made me feel good because they were they were scared and and, and you know once they saw you know we're big we're tattooed mm-hmm. we had beards and stuff and they were kind of terrified but you know getting to like hug these little girls and you know these little kids and stuff and treat them and you know do what we can to make them more comfortable like that was super rewarding being able to like work that's awesome and stuff wow. um and then just the the gratification of like you know like you find yourselves in like really shitty situations. Like, you know, we we're again, like these operations at Paktika where you're, you're, you're doing some heavy fighting. I mean, like throwing hand grenades over the walls at like, you know, Taliban and shit. Um, and like your dudes coming up and like bear hugging you that, you know, CQB one, you know, got them out of a shitty situation. And so that like means a lot when they, like, when you look around and like these dudes are looking for, to you for guidance and stuff like that. And, and as a combat leader that, you know, when you have that level of trust with your guys, especially with dudes that there's a language barrier and it's, you know, it's all your actions that they're basing, like, the trust in you, um, it makes you feel really good when you earn that kind of trust, especially with a culture that's so different, like, with the Afghans. And there was another – we got a mission that was canceled one night, and so we had, like, a, this famous Afghan band – came to the compound and we were all dancing and just having a, like a man fest. And so there's pictures of me doing like a dance competition with some of the Afghan dudes and stuff like that. And they've, nobody's ever let me live it down because I'm like on the ground on my knees, like dancing, like face to face with this dude. And so it's just a bunch of, just a bunch of combat dudes. You know, obviously there's, 
there's some kind of weirdness with the air, you know, the, you know, the Muslim culture with yeah. just the men affection and stuff like that. But it was just good to kind of like get a little taste of their like culture. And so yeah. we were dancing with each other, obviously no girls to be around. So <laughs> we we're just a bunch of dudes blowing off steam, listening to cool, like traditional Afghan music. And that was a pretty cool little event and stuff like that. I thought that, that was neat. That's awesome. And then we'd always have like, you know, world-class food. I mean, I thought it was world-class. Like, yeah. Um, they would put on these big spreads for us. So that was pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, that's really cool. My most memorable moment, like not in the army, but being a medic is I got, I unfortunately had witnessed a nasty car accident on the Autobahn and ended up having all my med gear and drugs and stuff with me. Wow. And it ended up, uh, there was some like tr- some traumatic, like lower leg amputations from motorcycle riders and stuff like that. And I ended up being able to like save a couple of people's lives on the Autobahn and got recognized by like the German government. And stuff wow. like that. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a wild story if you want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I so, want to hear Yeah. Yeah. Tell me. Uh, we were doing a jumping J set in the Czech Republic. And so obviously when the jumping J sets, you want to bring drugs and your made made aid bag and stuff. Cause doing MFF operation. So I was on an MFF team. I've been an MFF guy my whole career. Um, it's obviously high risk training and stuff like that. So you want to bring, um, you know, drugs and medical equipment and we're in a first world country. So basically I'm stabilizing and we're either calling local EMS or we're driving somebody to a hospital. Like I, I'm going to do what I can, but like the, the days of me pretending to be a doctor, like you don't need to do that when you can take someone to an actual real doctor. So, uh, that was the kind of the capacity I was in and then also jumping. And so we had these big, like 15 passenger vans that were like rentals or whatever. And, it was the riggers were in one van, like some other dude were in another van. Uh, and then I was in one van and you're t- supposed to travel in buddy teams, but it's only, I think from Prague or from where we were in Czech Republic back to Stuttgart, I think it was only like a six or six or seven hour drive. So dude, I can do that by myself. And so I was actually a little bit behind the other dudes and, and Germany, I had just crossed the Czech border in near, um, Alborg, not Alborg, Amberg, Germany. Uh, this is near like there's like Hohenfels and Grafenweird, Germany is near there, like those bases. And when there's an accident on the highway, there's no going around it. Like they, the traffic stops, highway shuts down until EMS, the cops come and like interrogate the scene. Like, so you basically, they, you just sit in traffic. Well, I see everybody's lights coming on. I'm like, oh man, damn it, I'm stuck. And so I pull over to the, you know, the far left, like towards the median. And I see debris and shit all over the place. And like I park and I get out of my car and I kind of come around the corner. I'm like, oh, there's a motorcycle. And I was like, there's definitely a dead body up there. And so I was like, I'm going to go up. There. I can, you can tell it just happened. Like people are like, the, the, there was a semi involved and stuff. And it was just like putting on its brake. And I was like, I'm going to go up there and cover up the dead body because these people don't need to see that stuff. And so as I come around the front of the semi truck, I see a dude laying way probably a hundred feet out in the middle of the road and he's moving. And I'm like, Oh no, he's dude, he's, he's still alive. And so I go sprinting up there and I come up and the dude's left leg's completely gone, right leg, barely hanging on by a ligament. I'm like, Oh my God, this guy's got friggin' amputated legs. And so I try to take his belt off and put it on the one that was bleeding the most. And I'm trying to, I don't speak German. And so I'm like trying to tell these people like, you got to come here, like hold pressure here. And people were like, no way that's on you, dude. And they're like, because there was blood everywhere. This dude was like pulling up around and I'm like, all right, whatever. Like, so I had to sprint all the way back to my vehicle and come back and I grabbed my drugs and I grabbed my aid bag and I had, I, I had a really hard time cutting this cause he had like leathers on or whatever. And so I was having a really, I was like, F it. I'm not going to cut these leathers off. I can't, I just don't have time. So I put deliberate tourniquets on, uh, on both of his legs. 
Um, at this point, he's kind of becoming aware of what's happening. So at this time, maybe like five minutes has happened probably since he got wrecked. So he's kind of like coming to, and now he's starting, he recognizes his legs are all missing and, you know, mangled. And so he starts losing it. And he's, I, he was, I didn't know at the time he was Italian, but I, I couldn't really understand what he was saying. And like, I took his helmet off. I'm like, Hey, I'm an American. I'm a medic. I'm here to help you. And he's like, okay, okay. And he, he, the whole time he's like talking about his dad. I'm like, I'm sure your dad's okay. And so I put tourniquets on this guy's leg. I'm like, bandage his legs. And I'm like, Hey, I'm going to give you something for the pain. I actually used my ketamine on him. I'm like, for about, I thought about it for about two seconds. I was like, I don't care if I get in trouble. Like I'm going to treat this dude. This guy's my, this guy's my patient now. I'm yeah. going to treat this guy. Yeah. And so I gave him, I think it was 50, 50 milligrams of ketamine. I was like, Hey, this is going to help, you know, take the edge off or whatever. And so he kind of, after I gave him that, after a couple of minutes, he started to like chill out. And so I actually bust out my litter, like get IV access. So by this time we were still using clear fluid. So I had a, a you know, um, a bag of Hexden, uh, which is a, a colloid, which is like a volumizer. It does nothing really for you except for pulling extrastitial fluid into the interstitial space. So like fluid in your body, it'll take it and bring it into the vasculature to like increase that uh, volume in there. So I hung that, I got an IV in, and then I started splitting his leg, like the one that was still kind of hanging on. I basically got him packaged up like I would like a combat package. And I'm like riding on this card and he keeps mumbling about his dad. And, and I look over and I see out of the corner of my eye, like another 50 or 75 feet, but down in like a culvert, I see another person. So this is like 10, 15 minutes after I started treating this dude. And I run over and this guy's like coming to, he's waking up. His hand is like folded backwards. Like, like his hand was like ripped open and stuff like that. And that was his dad. His dad was on the back of the motorcycle. Wow. With him. wow. And so, I like I take I take his helmet off and as soon or I try to take his helmet off as soon as I start he starts screaming and I, and I was like oh shit this guy might have a neck injury or something yeah, yeah. or a back injury and so I left this helmet on and I tried the best I could and I feel down his spine I don't know if it was a true step off but I felt some shit that was weird and he was like didn't want to be touched or whatever it was a lot of pain and so I finally got some lady to come help me and I was like you need to just hold this dude's head yeah. or whatever um, so now this is like 22 minutes since the injury happened I'm still the only show in town at this point. Jeez. And running around, um, like covered and completely covered in blood from this dude's freaking leg, my pants, my hands and stuff. I didn't, I don't put gloves on. I just don't really think about it. Probably yeah. not the right answer. But, <laughs> so my hands are covered in blood. Yeah. And so I get, I get another litter out and I get this dude on, I put him on a spine board and I get him over by a son. Like he sees his son starts freaking out. So I gave him some for said to kind of chill him out, uh, to stop panicking or whatever. And at this point that like life flight comes in the German, like flight paramedic. And then I can hear like some ambulances and police, uh, coming around the corner. So there's about 30 minutes I'm treating these casualties. And when the bird lands, I basically, the guy kind of spoke broken English. I handed him like a casualty card. I'm like, Hey, this is what I did. Tourniquets, like just trying to pantomime. And he was like, okay. And then I went, then I held up the vials of ketamine and Versed. I was like, ketamine, like Versed. And he, and I was like, I thought he was going to get shitty with me. They were like, good. They didn't even double check the page. They loaded them both up in the bird and flew off. They completely like trusted my judgment. I guess maybe they, how well, you know, they were, you know, packaged up or whatever. I think they were like, well, this guy obviously knows something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so they, they took him away, but then I had to do a bunch of interviews with the police or whatever. And then finally some one of the truck drivers like gave me some water, to, like wash myself off. And so I'm like, I'm like on cloud nine. I'm like, I got to tell somebody about this. I can, nobody saw it. And so I called the unit. I'm like, Hey, like I just saved a bunch of people's lives on the highway. And I thought that they would be like super excited about, it, but they kind of were like, but did you? And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, look how much blood's on my aid bag and stuff. Uh -huh. And so when I get back, I was explaining that I use drugs. And I, like, nobody even, like, gave me an attaboy. Not that I was looking for an attaboy, yeah. but I was like, <laughs> 
dude, that's pretty remarkable. I thought it was remarkable, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I talked to the, the commander or the, my, my surgeon or whatever. was like, hey, I use drugs on a civilian. Like, what do you want me to do about that? And so basically I just had to like do some paperwork and they were actually super chill about it. And like, it wasn't actually that big of a deal. Um, and then finally I got a call from like this chief of police or whatever. And they were like, Hey, we want to pass your information to the family. I'm like, yeah, okay. And so weeks and weeks and months and months go by. I ended up getting this. I came home one day and I saw this ginormous package on my doorstep and I opened it up and it's a, this giant, there's like Italian wines, like cheeses, like the candies wow. and a letter. I saw, I wish I had, it, I had gotten it out, but it was like, Dear soldier or Mr. Rob, I forget what they said on it, but like there's a picture of them, like because of you, like we're alive, like thank you so much, like you mean the world to us, like we love you, like you, like you, you, like our son would have been dead, like yada yada. And I was just like, holy smokes, like to to bring that able to come like full circle and like hear back from these people to know that they're like doing all right. And the in the picture, the guy's holding up his leg, he's got like a like a what looks like the beginning of a prosthetic, and he's like giving me the thumbs up, and like they're like good to go. And I was like, it was like completely like heart melting and stuff like that. Wow. um, Yeah, that's I think that to me like that's probably one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done to be able to be there for somebody when on the worst day of their life. Life. And especially a complete stranger, you know, I, I could have just ignored it. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I wasn't under any obligation to help those people. Right. Um, but I mean, they just, they're, I mean, you just kind of go into in medic mode. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was almost like on autopilot. So that, how, how important nowadays do you think it is to, to have that training, um, you know, and to be prepared for those bad days? Because, you know, I've been on the road, and, and in fact, it, I've talked about it on podcasts before, but, you know, Brady Cervantes and I were on the yeah. road when a bad accident happened. Oh, and, I remember in Arizona, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah in Arizona. And uh, I, he used the med bag that I yes. gave him. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was you. That was yeah, your he bag. called yeah. me right after that. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually funny because I had my bag from my buddy who's in seventh group. And so he got to the scene right there and he was like, ha ha. After, you know, afterwards, he, you know, he kind of, you know, obviously tr- tragic situation anyways. But we, you know, he looked at me each other and he goes, yeah, 10th group wins this one. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he got fine. his bag to the scene first. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, how important and imperative is it to to have that training? Because th- there will be situations that civilians get into or, or veterans, uh, you know, where, where stuff like that can just happen. And nowadays in this instantaneous world, you know, that we live in, there's obviously a lot of situations yeah. that happen like that. Um, I believe that if you just like when we were at winter strong, just teaching people how to control bleeding. If you instituted that at a young age and and like, that was part of like, you know, grade school through like high school, like curriculum, like that had to be like a thing that's reevaluated and retested and retaught. Mm Do you know how many lives would probably be saved by people just knowing how to put on a tourniquet or knowing how to do a pressure point to stop bleeding? Like, it would be incredible. I mean, it would be that one thing. If you just taught people how to stop bleeding would, would save thousands, tens of thousands of lives. I bet you over a a lifetime, you know, or decades or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you recommend to guys as far as those who are getting the, getting the training? Um, what would you say as far as what you have in your bag? If if you're going to carry an aid bag, obviously training is the most imperative part of having that, any of that material. What, What would you say are most valuable, um, obviously every scene and situation is going to be different, but what required materials do you yeah. think? So, I mean, just your average person that maybe just wants to, you know, help out on a situation, I would say, 
buy a deliberate tourniquet, buy a couple of deliberate tourniquets and buy some hemostatic gauze, whether that's like combat gauze, like cotton gauze, and then just some regular normal gauze and then some ACE wraps, uh, or just some deliberate bandages that are kind of like ACE wraps, but they have like some absorbent material on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have that. I mean, uh, nobody in the civilian world, like I would like, first of all, I, I don't think I would like crack somebody in the civilian world. Like right. just because of how weird our society is with like laws and stuff like that. Um, I would stop someone's bleeding, but I don't think that I would probably do more than that unless it was somebody that I knew just cause I would be in America afraid that somehow I would get sued, even mm-hmm. though you save someone's life. You know what I mean? Cause I've heard stories yeah. that that's happened. I, don't I know, have too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they're wives tales or whatever, but there was an incident as a matter of fact around here that supposedly in 18 Delta, like this woman crashed, like, uh, I think she was like you know, a very full of herself type woman, like probably very attractive, but you know, very vain. And <laughs> yeah. he had to crack her to save her life. And now she has a scar for the rest of her life and like sued that 18 Delta because he's not a doctor and like provided a level of treatment that I guess that she thought was unacceptable for the situation. I don't know whatever came of it, but that's Jeez. always been something that people have talked about. And so that kind of does scare me. Like, I, I say that honestly, I'm probably going to go into action, you know, but <laughs> Rob, it, but you don't it, strike me as somebody who wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, I, it would be something in the back of my mind though, right, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, th- yeah, I just, I mean, deliberate tourniquets, like the days of improvising tourniquets are over. Like yeah. the writing's on the wall. There's the, the, they're not that expensive. You know, there's products like North American rescue. I mean, tech med solutions. I mean, there's so many Sam, uh, Sam is another one. I don't think Sam's the name of the overall company, but they have a Sam tourniquet. Um, there's so many things out there that, if you do high risk stuff, if you're a hunter, um, you ride motorcycles, like you, you guys, you should have tourniquets yeah. at a minimum, a tourniquet. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how, how profound and how incredible has the impact and in, in changes in medicine been since you first got in to, to where you're at now and what you're teaching now? I mean, how much has that changed? Oh, I mean, a ton. I mean, we could sit here and talk for days about it. I mean, like, you know, when I first came in, we have what we call the March assessment. And so basically the March assessment is it's an algorithm that prioritizes what is going to kill the patient the fastest. Mm So um, M being massive hemorrhage, which is, you know, the number one uh, cause of preventable death on the battlefield is massive hemorrhage. And then you have airway and then you have respiration, the the act of breathing. Um, not, you know, actually taking a breath and, you know, you're, you know, like a sucking chest wound or something that would be like respirations. Um, and then you have circulation. So whether that's blood or, you know, just establishing IV access. And then you have H was like hyperthermia. So, uh, the lethal triad is you have like hyperthermia, acidosis, and, uh, oh man, I'm just, just bow that coagulopathy, acidosis, and hyperthermia are, are the, is the lethal triad. So it, you have to improve all three of those or your patient is going to freaking crash on you. And so mm. um, when I first came in, it was primary assessment, secondary assessment, like still teaching like ABCs, like airway, breathing, and circulation. Um, I feel like we still – it was kind of like this head-to-toe assessment. So like obviously we still went if there was massive bleeding, you addressed it. But then it was like this convoluted like head-to-toe assessment uh, before you – like you kind of hit things in sequence, like you're going down a checklist, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, or now it's like, all right, I'm at a, Hey buddy, are you talking to me? How do you feel? And if he answers me, I'm probably just going to blow past a, you know what I mean? I'm not <laughs> yeah, yeah. At, the, at this time. I'm not concerned about it unless it's something maybe like burns and or maybe he inhaled some like noxious gas or some like caustic gas or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean just the, the, the gear is the biggest thing. Uh, the medical products out there, 
I mean, we have this archaic looking thing called an IT camp or clamp, which is basically like this thing with a bunch of spikes sticking out of it that you can use to control like neck bleeding and, and areas that otherwise would be hard to wrap like an ace bandage around. Like it's a stupid, simple little plastic device that, you know, in, in the right circumstances, it can be huge. I mean, they have things called X stat, which are like these little BBs that you can put inside a wound track and you squeeze them into the wound. And then when, when it meets blood, it inflates itself and provides internal pressure wow. you know, on their artery. So really there's the gear, um, the modification, like of tourniquets. I mean, I think the cat tourniquet is on like generation seven or eight. Um, the soft T wide is on like generation five. And so it's, they're constantly improving. And then blood is the biggest thing that is the, the blood is the one thing. So we have the, I, I call it the continuum of death. And so you have on the, the, the vertical axis, you have like percent mortality or the chance of mortality. And then on the, the bottom axis, you have time. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we do in medical treatment is if you come up to a patient and do nothing, his path to death is pretty steep. You know what I mean? If you just did nothing, it's pretty straight line. Uh, not a whole lot of time and right to hundred percent mortality. Mm-hmm. And so what we do, all right, like putting a tourniquet on. So we're, we're, we're delaying death is what we do as medics. So by be putting a tourniquet on, you know, maybe that's all he needs if it's an extremity tourniquet, but if it's, you know, bleeding inside the box or if it's something in the pelvis, that's, that's kind of harder to manage. You can do what you can to kind of plateau that, that, you know, time to death or that you know, chance to mortality and then airway and then respiration. So everything is just kind of a step that you're doing to address new problem sets that come up in treating a casualty. But ultimately like that person needs a surgeon, that person needs a higher level of care. And the one thing that we can do as medics to actually improve the disposition of our casualties is giving them blood. Mm. And so that that's how important it is for God. Like if you're a medic um, or if you're in, I mean, at any level, you don't have to be soft. If you're going on operations and not carrying blood, like you are negligent in your duty. Mm. And that's how significant that is. What's the, what's this might sound like a dumb question, but what's the transportation method for something like that? Because obviously you need, you need blood to stay cool. cool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so how do you transport that? So there's many devices out there. I mean, there's, I mean, Pelican makes a bunch of them. Honestly, I don't know the nomenclature, but essentially you have boxes that are insulated boxes and there's some sort of cooling mechanism with that. Uh, Pelican makes these pretty neat ones that kind of look like a thermos okay. and you put the blood inside it and it has like a cap that has like that it freezes like so there's some sort of liquid inside it and then you put it on there and it has a thermometer on the outside. So essentially there's a box or some sort of contraption you were, you put the cold stored blood in that has a cooling element with it. And then you can carry that on an operation. Now, if you're doing an extended operation, there are things that you can plug into the back of the trucks that are like refrigerated tough boxes kind of, and it keeps it refrigerated. But uh, those little carrying devices, some of them say you can carry blood up to like 24, 48 hours. That is completely dependent on what the ambient temperature. So if you're in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, and it's 120 degrees outside, that your box that says it's good for 48 hours is probably good for about 12, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Before that blood starts going out of currency. Mm. Um, and so the, the, every medic will have some sort of mechanism to carry that. And, and then there's, there's, there's quite a few of them out there. That's wild to think about because you think back to the days of, you know, when, when your dad was in and there was no mechanism for that. I mean, there was no yeah. transportation method for blood. And so, you know, you really had to get it from source, right? And you, there was no other way to get it to the guy. Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know how the heck they probably stored it back then. I mean, I know in Vietnam, they were pushed. They didn't even have, they didn't have blood warmers, so they would their blood was obviously cold stored, and they would just push cold blood on people. Wow. Um, so yeah, I don't know what I can't remember how they were doing it in World War II. I mean, obviously that was well beyond the flot, you know, the forward line of troops. 
um, back at, you know, some sort of aid station or even back at a hospital. So unfortunately, a lot of people died from because they didn't have tourniquets. They had the concept of doing something, but it was all improvised stuff. You know, the Marines carried like a strap that was kind of had like a friction adapter. And like, you see old movies where they're matter of fact, I think that one with uh, Hacksaw Ridge, he uses some sort of tourniquet device, but what it's lacking is the actual windlass. So when we put those tourniquets on, there's an additional piece to that, that you can really like crank it down. Um, And so they lacked that windlass piece to their uh, tourniquets at the time, but I'm sure that they did the best they can, but I mean, really, it was just like survive until you can get to a level of care and hope, yeah. hope you make it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, if we ever go back to that kind of level of conflict, all this wizardry that we do now is frankly going to be out the window. Like we yeah. pretty much own the airspace. Um, we were pretty much ha- I wouldn't say unlimited resources, but because of the, um, the it's not really high density like combat operations. So we have blood. We have all that. But if we ever go to like a near peer conflict, it's going to blow the wheels off of everything we've learned. Not that the principles and the, and the technology doesn't exist, but it's, it's resource management and triage of your patients. Like you have, if we ever go to a near peer, you're going to have to make a determination of whether or not you're going to use resources on one of your buddies because, you know, he may not – like it may be three hours by the time he sees the next medical provider. Yeah. And so you got a guy over here that you know you could use stuff on that's 100% going to make it or you could waste all the stuff that you have on a guy that's probably not going to make it and now you're, you can't treat anybody else. And so um, that's a hard thing that's going to – for the future medics uh, that decide to come into the services that well, I hope we don't find ourselves in a near-peer conflict, but um, they're going to have to make tough decisions. Yeah, uh, priority. That, that's yeah, tough. Yeah. yeah. What uh so so talk a little bit about what you're doing now as cadre and in, in, in the position that you're in. Is this has this been one of the more valuable parts of your career in the position that you're in? Uh one hundred percent. It's the it's the greatest three years of my entire life. Like it sometimes it's even hard for me to like talk about it without even getting emotional because of how much I love this job. Yeah. Feel uh, free to get emotional. <laughs> um really get the ladies crying. Yeah, no kidding. Um yeah, so it's it's called the Special Operations Combat Medical Skills Sustainment Course, and like that every two years, I don't care what you know, it doesn't matter what union you are. You could be at the highest national mission force to a you know just a you know a ranger medic or just a dude like a CA medic just on a team. If you are an SOATP card holding medic, um, every two years you have to come to my committee to kind of get revalidated. Um, go through trauma runs, get all the updated information uh, that's put out through the medical community. Um, some guys, unfortunately, don't get a whole lot of medical training at their unit, so this is kind of like their only medical training they get, which is totally not the right answer. Mm-hmm. And when we're trying to change that dynamic out in the force, that um, in the past our course was a refresher course, and it was kind of no matter how bad you did, it was kind of just like, okay, well, next time you come here, like, better, you know, do better next time. But now like our course is becoming a validation where, you know, like you need to come here shit hot and you need to prove that you're still worthy enough to hold your ATP card. Mm. And because now that the wars are winding down, um, we have to be the foster, like we have to be the, you know, the foster of our profession. Like we have to be the people that, that maintain the standard because we're the only committee in the entire army or the entire military that recredentials this certification. Mm. Um, and so I was an originally an instructor for two years and unfortunately due to some unfortunate 
circumstances, I got thrusted into the NCOIC position, which I completely jumped at the opportunity. I was like, heck yes. Didn't even think twice about it. Yeah. Uh, the only reason I wasn't going to get an opportunity is because I didn't have longevity. And the, and the, this guy that was going to take the job was going to have the job for two years. And so it just made more sense for him to take the job. But he had some personal issues going on and I, I was able to take the job. So I have been serving as the NCOIC of the committee since August and it's just been a pleasure. I mean, the level of responsibility and the influence you have throughout the force and the soft medical community. And again, working, working with this guy named Wynn, I mean, there's not a single thing that you can't trace back to him over in soft medicine over the last 15 years. Wow. And getting to work with a cobbler, like a guy like that, it, I mean, it's it's been a truly a blessing. And, you know, when you get emails from dudes, you know, like, hey, like, you know, my junior medic got – shot in the stomach, you know, you know, what you guys taught us at Sockman C, like he's alive because of that. And, and that we get those emails not as often now is because of, you know, just kind of, there's not a whole lot COVID. There's really not a whole lot of anything going on. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's quite often we get those emails. And so, and that really brings things full circle and it's uh, super rewarding. Um, we had a one sixtieth medic that was coming through our course for the last time. Like he was getting ready to retire um, and there was a guy from 10th group named Mike Riley. Like I, I knew Mike semi well, but I mean, I well knew him well enough to know that this guy was like a solid green beret and he was one of the most well-respected green berets in 10th group. Um, and this guy was the medic that picked up Mike when Mike got wounded. And he asked me if I was from 10th group. I said, I was in. He's like, did you, do you know Mike? I'm like, yeah, I know Mike. And he like broke down and started crying. He's like, I want you guys to know that we did everything that we could to save him. And I was like, brother, I don't think anybody thinks that you didn't. Wow. And so to be able to close that kind of gap, I wish his teammates would have been there to be able to like hear that, but like yeah. to close that gap that like, you know, they did everything they could or whatever. And like, he, he just wanted to like, let us know that like, you know, we tried, you know, and Mike's a fucking hero and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know, it's pretty rewarding getting to like have that kind of closure and that kind of stuff happens all the time. And like the, the people you get to meet, the, the soft medical community is one of the greatest communities. Uh, Cause like no matter, like when you meet other green berets, like, it's like, I don't know. There's kind of like that sniff test, you know what I mean? Like, you're kind of like figure each other out and dudes, you know, dudes puff up their chest. But like, if you're like, oh, I'm an 18 Delta, you're like, oh, you're a weirdo like me or whatever, you know? And so there's kind of like that instant link that like other dudes don't have. Like, right. there's definitely a subculture within special operations that are medics. I've noticed um, that with the Deltas, yeah. I've yeah, and so it's like a big family. Like, you see everybody, like you keep tabs on people and... I don't know. I, you know, people could if you could name some arbitrary like 18 Bravo and like, yeah, I don't know that guy, but there's a <laughs> decent chance if you're like, Hey, do you know this medic? I'm like, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. And so it just, it's a great community and it's been a, just a true, true like pleasure to be able to like provide our committees training back to the force. Uh, and I just, I don't know. My command is amazing. The place that we work, like everything about it. Like, and there's the times in SF I would wake up and be like, shit i gotta go to work i wake up every morning like dude i get to go to work today yeah and it drives people nuts because i bring like high energy into work all the time and people are like dude it's freaking seven o'clock in the morning like you need to just tone it down you still a got a full day bro yeah <laughs> yeah what what do you think you know you know i i've seen you i first met you at uh summer strong um and then you know at this latest event that sornex put on winter strong and uh, I believe I'm sure you've had been there before, right? And to past iteration of Winter Strong, or was this your first time? No, no, I've no. been to all three Winter Okay, Strongs. all three Winter Strongs. 
what's cool about teaching the civilian community? Obviously, there are veterans there and people that have you know been involved in the community, and quite a few. But what's cool about that? Do you enjoy that type of teaching arrangement there? Yeah, I mean, I was a little, I was a little apprehensive, not because I didn't feel like I could, you know, meet like Bert's intent of what he was asking me to do. But one, I'm, I'm used to training medics. And so I was kind of really, I was, I had to be very conscious of how I talk to people and engage because I didn't want, I wanted them to get what I was trying to say and not be overly complicated. And so the whole time when I was teaching, like I had to constantly be like, all right, don't use this word. Like bring it home. Like explain to them. Like you have to remember these guys don't know some of the medical terminology they're using. Um, yeah, breaking it down to that level can be one of the most complex things you can do when you've worked at a high level of doing it too. Yeah, for sure. And I honestly, I was really pleasantly surprised with like the questions people were asking, the participation that people were genuinely interested. I mean, like I was like looking around and people were like eyes glued. And I think that I, because I've, I've never trained initial entry medics. Like I've certainly trained people that haven't had medical training, but I don't get that like, oh, that like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm experiencing something new for the first time right now. And so when people were coming up to me like afterwards and be like, that was amazing. Like I've never taught that. Like I that was just unbelievably rewarding because I don't, you don't get that kind of like feedbacks, so, you know, like military guys are just like, cool, th- sweet, thanks. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And so to get that kind of feedback from them and how appreciative, even from like pops and, you know, Bert, like pops came up to Bert and was like, Oh my God, like Rob, you know, he can really teach and, you know, he really <laughs> knows this stuff. And, you know, I never, you know, I never thought knew that. And Bert was like, what do you, what do you think Rob does for a living? <laughs> like, and so I thought it was kind of funny because I've always just been robo and like they all know that I'm a green beret and yeah. that I'm in the army, but they've never seen me in my element. They've never seen me perform my job. They've never seen me give a lecture. They, so they, they, they've only seen one side of me. And so that at Winterstrong was the first time anybody in the Sorenex community saw me, the the, the Green Beret, they as opposed to just Rob, the, you know, their buddy or whatever. You right. Know, yeah. You know? yeah. And so I thought that that was pretty neat that they got a little glimpse into like what I do in the military and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they, there's there's a, a lot of people love like the action stuff and, you know, there's the, you know, sexiness around the soft community. But to me, I think the medical stuff is like, to me, is like the sexiest stuff. So like, yeah. I, was, I always tell people, I was like, anybody can pull a trigger and shoot somebody, but it takes a special person to save someone's life. Yes. And not only to save somebody's life, to put your, their life ahead of yours, that you're going to assume risk that others maybe wouldn't to save that person's life. So I think that there's, uh, and I'm obviously very biased, but I think that there's a lot of honor in that and there's no greater gift you could give to somebody is than life. Mm. And when you can make sure that like people like, like when you come up to a patient, like they think that you can perform miracles and like, you have to live up to that responsibility that is placed on you by your teammates and other people. And so, um, we owe it to the force to be the best trained medics in the world. And that goes back to kind of like our validation that like when people are having the worst day of their lives, like they expect you to be the one that makes sure that they can see their kids and their family and stuff again. And you owe it to them to be the most well-prepared because medics don't rise to the occasion. You ri- you rise to your level of training. And if your level of training is once every two years, you're going to, you're not going to do a great job. So, right. um, you, your future medics, your future casualties depend, you know, that you owe it to them to train hard. So, yeah. Well, that's, I think it's important you brought that up and the culture of what I've seen and, you know, all these interviews that we've done, I've definitely noticed that as a subculture, you know, the 18 
Delta guys are the most proud of what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's pretty incredible. I think, and and the the army as a community having you know intensified that culture, I think, is a great thing for the community. I, w- I would almost love to see that replicated in other areas, but I think because it's such a detailed discipline, you really have to be proud of what you do, you know, in order to do it well. Absolutely. I mean, an M4 stays an M4. And <laughs> the problems you deal with with an M4 are always the same problems you deal with an M4, where, you know, with, especially with combat medicine with, you know, high-velocity rounds and unpredictable wound patterns caused by blast. I mean, there's always a problem set. I mean, if you think of it, I mean, there's guys that gotten blown up and their, you know, their throat was crushed by the steering wheel of the, the truck. And not only that, you know, their hand's blown off or whatever it may be. And so, you know, there's no you know, repeat offenders, you know what I mean? Like everything you see could potentially be something new and a new problem set. And I love doing, I don't like treating people like in real life. I mean, I I will do, it's my job, but like, I love like doing like trauma scenarios and stuff like that because it really makes you think, um, you know, your actions have consequences and our instructors are like, we have an incredible cadre, uh, team of instructors and that, you know, if I make a mistake, even as, you know, I'm a medical, you know, medic instructor, if I make a mistake, they know to take the scenario in a, in a direction. And now you have to react to the mistake that you made and and try to bring things back. And so it's really fun to kind of work in that dynamic environment Mm -hmm. and, you know, work through a ton of different problem sets. Um, so it's, it's really neat. That's awesome. Well, you know, Rob, I'm, I'm going to wrap things up here, but uh, I definitely wanted to ask you, you know, within your, your marriage and, you know, Allison being in the Army, how, how valuable has her experience been and your experience been in, you know, in, in cultivating uh, a healthy marriage life, you know, because you both know the Army way. And so is that helpful in, in the relationship and kind of understanding and getting each other? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. Alice and I laugh all the time. Like, so some of her, uh, her coworkers, like they're, some of them are like initial entry soldiers, but they're like, they're medical providers. They haven't done anything. Allison's deployed multiple times. Um, she's like, you know, she, she could probably be a ranger if she wasn't a medical officer, you know what I mean? Like she's tough as, you know, woodpecker lips. And so like, she was just in Memphis for a month and like her, you know, fellow teammates and stuff were mowing through there and they were like having a meltdown that they had to be away from their family for like a month. And she's just like, <laughs> like you think a month is a problem? Like, and so I think because we both, I mean, it doesn't make it any easier. Like I hate being away from her and I hate when she's gone. I mean, it sucks, but it's just kind of a thing we deal with because it's just has been a part of our lives. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, like it doesn't make it easier, but we just, we know the routine. It's like, Hey, you're going to be gone. Like, you know, it's not, it's, you know, you're taking care of the cats, you, you own the responsibility of the house. And so we know each other, we how to pick up each other's roles and how to seamlessly transition each other back into our established, you know, you know, priorities and stuff like that when we get back. And so certainly being dual military, uh, helps and especially the lingo like this we you deal with the same problem so there's a shared understanding of the things that maybe are frustrating me that like a civilian spouse you know they can pretend to understand or they can try to understand like she 100% understands because she yeah. deals with the same bullshit because uh, army bullshit is army bullshit no matter if you're in you know the most elite level soft unit like it's kind of all just army bullshit you know right I mean? and so it definitely helps for sure that's awesome well, Rob, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Absolutely. I appreciate you uh, providing some insight into the 
medical community and especially at such a high level it's it's awesome it's not very often that we get active guys on here so to have your perspective is awesome and i appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me yeah so um for those of you for those who kind of want to get more into the the medical side and understanding of like basic uh medical knowledge do you recommend any any websites or anything for anyone to visit who's trying to get into that type of care i know at a initial entry level it's a little tough but any recommendations for anybody out there as far as what they should get into for learning yeah, I mean, if you plan on, like, coming into the military and, and you know, want to start learning a little bit, I always recommend the Ranger Medic Handbook. Okay. Um, it's a bit pricey. I think what it's like 40 bucks, But, it, I mean, I still to this day carry one in my pocket when I go places and stuff like that. So if you're interested, whether you're 68 Whiskey or, or whatever that equivalent is in any of the forces, I would get your hands on a Ranger Medic Handbook. I always tell people, I was like, don't overthink it. Like, if you, honestly, if you – try to accumulate a ton of training prior to coming in the military. You may have, you may develop bad habits that are, will be harder to break than if you just came in with like a fresh open mind, mm. but like getting into the range dramatic handbook, that's going to give you most of the right answers. Um, I mean, you can go to the joint trauma system websites. I mean, there's all sorts of official, I would say a state like or near official like DOD, um, stuff. So there's a lot of bad poop out there. There's, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody wants a piece of the pie. And I, I would say be very wary of like these kind of like hodgepodge or like dudes that are like promoting some of these, you know, trauma courses geared towards civilians. Cause there's a lot of dudes that are putting out a lot of bad information. So, <laughs> um, just like weapons instructors, yeah, just like <laughs> weapons instructors. So definitely do your research. Uh, if you can reach out to me, if you yeah. want to know if somebody's credible or not, um, but if you're looking for it as, as a career, I would just say, touch it, don't overthink it. And then just, uh, you know, absorb it as it comes to you, yeah. uh, as a civilian, um, you know, just, yeah, just, I mean, there's look at YouTube videos. I mean, there's so much stuff. There's the, the PJ, the PJ med podcast, like that guy, I forget what that guy's name is, but like everybody I've never listened to it, but mm-hmm. people say that that's super dope. Yeah. Um, a lot of vignettes and stuff on there. And, uh, there's a few other guys. Um, there's a couple like, you know, social media guys like Matt or dad, he's a British, um, you know, like version of a soft medic. Okay. Um, and so there's some guys out there that are putting out some good information, follow North American rescue on, yeah, yeah, on I mean, online. I mean, those guys great, are putting yeah. stuff out all the time and the NAR doctor is a great dude. Um, and so there's a ton of dudes and SF medics, another one, there's a ton of them that are out there that are pretty cool. And even just going on Instagram, like they, they'll kind of post pictures and then kind of break down the vignette of how like that patient was treated. And so mm-hmm. there's stuff, there's takeaways from that stuff. So that's awesome. If, if someone wants to reach out to you or send you a DM, would you, you know, tell them your, you have an Instagram handle that they can yeah, reach out at to you. Rob yeah. the medic. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's very valuable because yeah. you're still doing it right yeah, now. For so sure. very high level. Yeah. So. I mean, I, so, I mean, tons of people have reached out to me. Um, I've, I've never once turned away anybody that's asked for guidance. Um, you know, people come and go, there's people that I've given more attention to. Um, there's people that take, you know, what I tell them and then I never hear from them again. But if anybody has questions, all my, by all means, you know, there's nothing that gives me pleasure in life than training the next generation. My, you know, my days of, uh, my days now I've effectively removed myself from operations. So I'm, um, I'm really on the backside of my career. And so, um, the best thing I can do is, 
you know, share the knowledge and, that I've gained over the years for the next generation, and hopefully we're a better prepared force for the next time America needs us. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't own a monopoly on medical knowledge, so I'm, <laughs> you know, willing to share that or any, any knowledge for that matter about the military. So mm. nothing's, o- nothing's overly secret that we can't share with each other now, no matter what, what like certain individuals want to make it seem like. <laughs> obviously, there is certain things, but you know, general principles of, you know, good physical conditioning, military bearing. So like, there's nothing that's secret about that stuff. So reach out and ask. (laughs) Appreciate that, Rob. Well, for those of you listening, uh, uh, we know you've, I'm sure you've enjoyed this podcast and extensive medical knowledge that Rob has offered and, and some incredible stories. We appreciate the stories as well. Um, and for those of you listening, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the show. And most of all, don't forget our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.